0: Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Playing Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Runway by Oz Runways. The Android EFB you've been looking for from the makers of Australia's most popular electronic flight bag. For your free 30-day trial, search RWI in the Google Play Store or visit OzRunways.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 126 of Australia's Aviation Show. Well, I should say Australia's rather less than frequent aviation show, but it is 2016. We're back in the studio. I'm Steve Fisher. I'm really happy to be here and I'm really happy to be talking to you as well. Grant McHaren. how are you, mate?
1: Hey, not too bad, man. Not too bad. A little tired, but uh, yeah, this is kind of sort of like riding a bike, isn't it? You don't really forget it except that, you know, the bike's on fire. That's right, on fire.
0: (laughs) Everything's on fire. And of course, it's taken. Us about four takes to actually get this intro done, so we're not doing too not doing too badly by our standards.
1: Well, there is always that too.
0: <laughs> and joining us also on the line tonight from beautiful Adelaide in South Australia, it's Michael Lee. G'day, Michael.
2: G'day, gentlemen, and g'day everyone. I hope everyone is well since the last time we spoke.
0: Yeah, Michael, we've had you in mothballs, uh, you know, waiting to get this episode out. But uh, recently, we've had you uh, in the editing studio over there in Adelaide, and uh, you've been very busy, mate.
2: My recency for editing sort of ran out, so I needed <laughs> to. Um, Get a safety editor to watch over my shoulder as I re edit some of the footage and re edit some of the uh, packages. But it's all going well. ICUS on the editing suite, huh? <laughs> ICUS on the editing suite. That's the best way to put it. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> there we go. You know, actually, Grant, we were just talking before we started recording. Actually, you you actually produced the last uh, episode way back in August of last year. So That's pretty scary, isn't it? Know, in command under supervision. Gee. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I, no I one edited need supervision. it. I uh, recorded the rappers and put the whole damn thing out. That's just <laughs> wrong.
0: Well, let's talk some flying, folks. I've been doing a little bit of flying in recent months. I've been flying this... this Wonderful uh, glass cockpit Cessna 172 we found at Morabin for a, well, reasonably reasonable price by Australian standards. And uh, I've been enjoying that, Grant. Uh, what flying have you been doing? I'm assuming it's nothing to do with Cessnas.
1: No, 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 no. I've not even, actually, to tell you the truth, over the last few months, um, I, I've done a little bit of ballooning, which has been a lot of fun. I've, uh, I have think the last flight I did, I'd have to look up my logbook online, but uh, my last flight was uh, probably back in February. Um uh, when it gets hot, uh, a lot of farmers don't like having balloons flying over their, uh, you know, very dry crops and so on. So uh, we generally try and avoid flying. Um, I did manage to sneak one last flight in up in Benalla, where the, um, the the Country Fire Authority was saying that uh, it was just high, not super high, and obscenely high chance of fire. So I managed to get a flight in up there. And, uh, yeah, I'm just getting everything ready to uh, actually... Probably about the time this is coming out and everyone's listening to it, I'll be in Canberra getting ready to uh, enjoy the Canberra Balloon Fiesta or spectacular as they're calling it these days. And I'll be flying there and also working as deputy flight director.
0: You've, been, you've certainly been busy. And I guess, uh, well, we've both been busy. And that's why it's, uh, you know, the show's been a little bit of hiatus lately. But uh, anyway, oh, that's, uh, that's yeah. just the way the world works. Hey, Mike, uh, now we could ask you if you've, if you've been doing any flying. But uh, <laughs> most people would know that who uh, listen to this show that you actually uh, work for an airline. We won't say who that is. But uh, I guess you've been doing a lot of it, mate.
2: I've been doing quite a fair bit of it uh, with work. Work has been pretty busy over summer. And I've uh, been getting my small aircraft fixes through the many air shows that we've attended since the last episode.
0: Yeah, and of course, you've cool. been to, uh, I guess, the Nil Air Show, and uh, we're actually going to uh, be playing some uh, some interviews uh, actually from the vault, you know, stuff that we've collected over the last uh, year or so uh, that we're going to get out. So uh, I guess we'll have one of yours actually uh, talking about air shows that you went to last year. Probably a big one was Avalon, and we've got one from you, Micah, uh, coming up a bit later on that we'll talk about in a sec.
2: Yep, yep, that should be a pretty entertaining one once we uh, get around to it.
0: <laughs> actually, the bloopers are pretty good, actually. I like the way you've uh, edited those in there.
2: I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you. Uh, Glad you enjoyed it. I hope the audience enjoys
0: it as well. Okay. Well, of course, the uh, title of this episode, of course, is Emirates Wants You. And of course, uh, well, if you're uh, looking for an airline career or if you're already in one, um, you know, a lot of people are looking over to that part of the world. And uh, we'll be playing in a few minutes an interview we recorded a week or so back with uh, Andy Longley, who's a, a senior recruitment uh, manager there over at Emirates, uh, talking about just exactly what it is that they're looking for in a pilot and, uh, you know, what sort of experience you need. And also, Grant, uh, we also talked to them a bit about uh, non-pilot roles.
1: Yeah, we certainly did, mate. Uh Figured for all those of us who are listening who kind of like to uh, consider being a flight attendant or cabin crew, as they're often referred to these days, uh, through the question and uh, just to find out what was involved in becoming a... uh and Emirates flight attendant, and uh, it was quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it certainly was. And a bit later in the show, uh, well, Michael, let's talk about what you got up to down there at Avalon. Well, you got up to a lot of things, but uh, you uh, paid a visit to Air Services Australia and had a a quick whirl of their ATC simulator.
2: Yeah, I've uh, been very captivated as such by air traffic control and the airway system, and to my delight, they had a sample of their air traffic control simulator there. And uh, with a bit of coercing, they actually let me have a go at it. And I think they were probably a little somewhat surprised at uh, how well my phraseology was.
0: And uh, we'll just have to see how that goes and decide if uh, Micah is in fact going to uh, you know, leave the right-hand seat of that airline he flies for and maybe take up a spot next to our friend ATC Ben. We'll just have to see how that went. Uh, Also coming up in the show, uh, we've got an interview that I recorded with uh, Melbourne Airport, with Anna Gillett from Melbourne Airport talking about uh, photography from many areas there, but of course the new T4 car park there, which um, I'm sure was intended to be a car park, but uh, golly, I'll tell you what, Grant, uh, does it give some good views of the runway for photographers?
1: Yeah, I think that's the whole purpose for it, isn't it? It's the Brand new car park built especially for aviation geeks. It's like it's like the car park at the old Kai Airport. Used to go up on the top of that and get some fantastic views and photos of the aircraft coming in, going checkerboard, right turn, whoop, and landing.
0: Well, you know, if they if they can't have the observation deck there like they used to, Grant. Well, you know, maybe one of our av geek friends is an engineer and he's actually managed to uh, get himself on the project and build that mm. car park especially for people like us. Could explain a lot, mate. What a wonderful person.
2: Case in point, gentlemen. Uh, Kai Tak. You mentioned Kai there, Grant. One of my earliest childhood memories was actually at Kai Tak getting out the rear door of a Lockheed TriStar and watching a big cafe jumbo jet go around the checkerboard approach. And <laughs> I reminisced that memory so much the, the jumbo jet was in the old cafe apple green stripe along mm-hmm. the side. And it was memories like that that pretty much made me who I am today. Just really obsessed as such, tragically, with aviation.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I went to Hong Kong for a day for a meeting. I was uh, transiting between Thailand and um, and Korea, so I stopped off for the day and uh, went through uh, the guys who picked me up, said, all right, we know you're an airplane geek, come on. And we went up the top of that car park and we stood there for a good half to one hour just watching the aircraft coming in. And it, it was great. You'd see Qantas come in and you'd see some of the other airlines come in and they'd, they'd do okay. You'd see maybe a couple of the other airlines who we won't name, but maybe in from mainland Asia, and they're coming in, wallowing their way around, and sort of you know flop, flop, flop. Oh, there we go, and down. And then you'd see Cathay Pacific and the seven four seven four hundred just come in and crisp, clean as you like, just bang, bang, bang down they'd come, and it was absolutely brilliant by the numbers through. And one of the guys was was saying that yeah, probably find the captain was also drinking his tea at the same time. (laughs) It was. uh, It was quite impressive to watch them and just compare the differences of these aircraft coming in.
2: And I like watching all the YouTube videos from the cockpit off the cafe 747s coming into land, and you'll find nine times out of ten they're Australian pilots.
0: Well, that kind of yeah. comes in with the theme of what we're going to be talking about in a sec, Grant, but uh, also uh, we got one out of the vault here, Grant, that we've had stored for a while, and uh, you actually interviewed uh, Nicola Scaife, who was the uh, w- Women's World Hot Air Balloon Champion back in 2014.
1: That's right, mate. Uh, not long after she got that uh, title, um, got on the uh, phone with her and we had a really good chat. And, uh, yeah, she's just about to, to go and contest that. That's coming up very soon now this year. Uh, but uh, the first time it's gone up for They hold them every two years, I believe. But uh, yeah, she's going out to contest that. Nicola flies commercially up at uh, the Hunter Valley. So if you're ever up at the Hunter Valley and want to go fly with the women's world champion, uh, go uh, give Balloon Aloft a call and see what you can get. Because her husband, Matt, is also the Australian champion. So uh, you're in pretty good hands when you go flying with those two.
0: No worries. And we'll look forward to that interview coming up a little bit later in the show. But first, as I mentioned there at the top, uh, the feature interview is with uh, Andy Longley, who's a a senior recruiting manager there for uh, Emirates Airline. We spoke to him in Dubai about a week ago now as we record this. And we uh, kicked off by
3: saying, Andy Longley, welcome to the show. Good evening and good morning uh, from here in Dubai. I'm doing well.
0: (laughs) Now, of course, the first thing everybody's going to ask you, Andy, is how is the weather over there in Dubai? I bet it's just (laughs)
3: stunning. It's actually uh, glorious in terms of the winter. There's not too many countries unless you're a skier or snowboarder where you get really excited about the winter but Dubai is one of them um, so it's perfect at the moment a nice 26 ish degrees during the day probably drops down to 20 degrees overnight no humidity still got glorious beach weather so everyone's happy um, for the next couple of months at least
0: Andy um, you know one of our uh, one of our co-hosts a couple of years ago who regularly flies with Emirates uh, describes it as the United Nations of the sky in terms of its crewing uh, I note with, uh, for example that uh, you perhaps have a, an accent more from this part of the world.
3: Yeah, so I'm from New Zealand. I was uh, born and raised in Christchurch, um, and then I've spent a lot of time living in Auckland, but I've also lived around the world quite a lot. I've lived in the States um, for a period in Colorado, also had a a year in Canada, A couple of years living in Scotland, uh, six months in Syria, six months in Lebanon, and now two years living in Dubai. So, yeah, I'm probably a good representative sample of an Emirates employee. that um, tends to have, have been to a few different places of the world. But but Emirates is actually, I think, the second most multinational organization after the United Nations. Um we have 165 different nationalities in the company, and a significant number of those are also um, represented in the flight deck.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. Um, one of the the reasons that we're we're sort of doing this interview into our Australian focus program, of course, is that you now a lot of pilots are looking to Asia and to the Middle East. Uh, you know, in terms of career choices. So uh, obviously, Emirates being the big guy on the block there, uh, that's really relevant to our audience.
3: Yeah, it's, there's there's plenty of Australians as well. There's plenty of oh, a few Kiwis, but I guess the in terms of the proportion of, of nationalities you get in the flight deck, um, we get a significant number of Western European, um, so you will get um, Brits, Irish, um, you know, Scots as well, there's a lot of those ones. We do have a lot of uh, Scandinavians, um, also Germans, Austrians, um, so they're really represented well because they do do have quite big airline industries. Um, we are getting an increasing number of, of North Americans in terms of Canadians and Americans and, and that's probably uh, to be expected, I guess, as, as the global borders and boundaries tend to reduce with time. And Also, there's such a huge pilot population in America. And when they start to think about some of the opportunities they may have to go fly, wide-bodied or, or international um, where they can be quite restricted in terms of the career paths um, much like um, New Zealand, Australia and some of the other countries which have um, one or maybe two international players and it's a really hard pathway for those that do want to fly um, internationally.
1: I know that in the US uh, to get into the uh, into the regionals and beyond you've got to have that new uh, 1500 hour law. Uh, are you finding that some Americans are coming to fly for Emirates and get build up their hours before they can go back or what, what's the typical threshold that you're looking at from a pilot for Emirates?
3: Yeah, so the, in terms of the minimum hours, I guess we, we do see that from a lot of nationalities, being an expat airline, and I'll come back to the minimum hours. But on your first point, we do get a lot that do want to come over and, and have quite a unique experience. Um, you know, the, the Middle East is a huge growth region for, for, for global aviation, and it's not looking like it's going to be slowing down, and that's generally due to the location. Um, if we go back in time a little bit, the old spice route was what connected east to west um, in terms of the And that same sort of geographical model is still what's led to to Qatar, to Etihad and, and of course, to Emirates being quite popular in terms of linking the different uh, Western and Eastern hemispheres. And so that brings a a lot of opportunity and a lot of people do come over to experience a lifestyle. Um, Some complete their career with Emirates as well and, of course, go on to be captain or training captains or... Or TREs or move into management um, and do spend their time here but you can't retire uh, as such uh, over a certain age in the UAE as, as a national rule so it is an expat population so we do see a lot of pilots come over gain some good experience um, some will stay until their, their children have finished school as well because part of the, the Emirates model is that um, private education is paid for so that tends to be a good point and then sometimes when the kids have left school and they're 19 and when their parents are looking at what next they may think about um, going somewhere where they can be closer to, to their family. But we do get a lot of Americans, and increasing numbers, actually, is probably a huge pull. They tend to have very challenging career paths to go into United or Delta or American. So they do go to some of the low-cost carriers um, and try to get the international experience. But again, that's very competitive in that American market. Um, so what we've got in terms of our criteria, I guess, the 2,000 hours um, is the minimum number, and that has to be on a, on a multi-engine, multi-crew aircraft. Uh, with maximum takeoff weight above 10 tonne, um, above 20 tonne rather for 2,000 hours. Um, But if you have been flying something a little bit smaller like an ATR-42 or or maybe something a little bit smaller like a a dash eight two hundred. Um, then, if it's above ten tons uh, maximum takeoff weight, then we can look to have three thousand hours. So, just a little bit more experience on the smaller aircraft, um, okay. and that's quite a recent change.
1: Now, there's a lot of talk around the place at the moment of a pilot shortage, especially in the US. You spend a lot of money trying to get your license, and then you spend a lot of time earning almost nothing while you try and build your hours. Um, how is Emirates finding are you Have you got more applicants than positions and it's seeming to stay that way? Or are you, have you had to change things and start? You, you mentioned turboprops, and I, I've heard people talking about Bizjet pilots coming through uh, based on those stats. So long as you've got the hours and an aptitude and, and seem to pass, okay, it sounds like Emirates will take you, is that correct?
3: Yes, yes, it is to a certain degree. So the, there's definitely a shortage globally in terms of pilots for the number of airlines. That's quite recognised. So it does make, make, um, I guess, the competition um, to, to get really good and qualified pilots quite fierce as well so it's it's really good for your listeners who are out there actually looking to get into a commercial role or just aviation in general that there is a real appetite in there and it's a good career path obviously if you can get the um, the needs um, in, in your favour then that's going to be really positive so um, in terms of different types of pilots we haven't changed in any way whatsoever our assessment so those Emirates pilots who, who are being I guess recruited and selected five years ago um, are sort of looking at the same calibre as those that we're seeing come through now so the standards haven't changed but but what the goal was to really look at um i guess increasing the number of pilots who who could um show their potential and, and actually be eligible so we increased the pool and what we wanted to do there was have guys who are flying turboprops um, you know great aircraft guys who are flying business jet you know, the lifestyle of a business jet partner is, is quite spectacular. You have to be very structured and very safety conscious, of course, as, as all pilots are, but you have to be incredibly flexible as well because the, the owner of your jet can say, right, no, we're not going there anymore. Here, here's we need a new flight plan. So they have quite a different job and they have to be really uh, autonomous and really independent and really good decision makers as well. But they've still got to understand that, that safety is paramount. So we're realizing that there's a lot of fantastic pilots out there flying both of those different types of aircraft means that we can try to tap into those. And those who are suitable um, to come join Emirates and, and meet the standards um can can provide um, a really good opportunity of having great pilots and, and so that was the real driver in terms of trying to access the great pilots who are flying different airframes which a lot of larger carriers traditionally haven't looked at before.
0: Now I notice uh, Andy that uh, you know you predominantly, well you, in fact exclusively an Airbus and a Boeing operator I guess uh, lots of 777s in your fleet, A330s, A340s and particularly A380s you've got uh, according to a website here 74 I think with another 66 on order so coming from a turboprop uh, into that type of aircraft. Maybe we could talk a bit about the transition process that uh, you guys would uh, do for any prospective
3: applicants. Yeah, absolutely. So um, traditionally, what we would get is, is those those guys who are on Airbus will will likely go to our, our A380 fleet. Um, that's the only fleet we're recruiting for for Airbus because we're we're slowly retiring the three thirties, three forties, and three one nine at some point as well. So um, so it's A380. If you're coming in as an Airbus pilot, that's the good news. You're going to be flying um, the big bus um, and yeah, Boeing Triple Seven. So we've got a 199 777s um, ordered and paid for. Um, and, yeah, we've got um, just over 70 A380s ordered and paid for still to, to arrive. So we've got plenty of them coming, hence the reason um, to, to really need lots of pilots, and that's the good news is there's jobs for for all those pilots who are, who are really good and, and meet our criteria. So that's quite unusual for an airline because a lot of the times, you know, there can be furloughs, in, especially in the American aviation industry and other parts, you know, some... some um, airlines are downsizing or are having lists. Stable, I guess, career prospects, um, especially in the German market at the moment. So, so the Middle East definitely is growth. So it does give pilots the opportunity to have some good uh, career stability. And, and Emirates is yet to to lay off a pilot, um, and it's and it's full history. Um, so that's something reasonably positive. Um, and so in terms of what would happen for those coming in on which fleets, traditionally, what what tends to happen is those who are coming in and they've been flying sort of the yoke, uh, I guess, controls would tend to be more aligned to a Boeing. Um, system um, and those who are a bit more side stick would tend to go to the Airbus. But you know, as a company, there has to be the operational requirements. So it's conceptually possible that an individual has come in from flying um, some of the different aircraft using a yoke stick and then or yoke control rather, um, and be put on the Airbus. And so what we've done is with. The opening up to other um, turboprop and business jet and different aircraft pilots we have really changed and reinvigorated um, our training. So now we have um, a significant number of training footprints, which we'll put on to suit, um, I guess, the cohort of pilot that'll be joining at that time. Um, so traditionally, they'd normally come in with a with an Airbus or a Boeing type rating, and they'd go and do a, a you know an Emirates type rating course because that's the first stage for all of our pilots, um, which is around about a three month initial training period to to type rate them to the Emirates. Standards. Um, and those sectors um, will also include flying to all of the, of the six continents which Emirates flies to as well, including flying over the Arctic. So they get exposed to all of those conditions before the end of their type rating. But now what we've done in terms of the training world is for those pilots who are coming in not having flown a jet, so if you've come off the turboprop, um, you will get a jet orientation course. Um, you'll also get um, an extended type rating training course to focus on on some of the principles, and also be aware that you don't have that same background of coming off of a of one of the large jets. Um, and we've also looked at our our lifer sectors as well. So when we're going to be putting in some of the less experienced uh, on an Airbus or Boeing um, pilots, um, they will can be doing up to up to 36 lifer sectors. So what's that mean? is once they've done their initial typewriting course and, and through that process, they'll be getting a lot of sectors flown with training captains um, to, to be able to supervise and train them through that period. So it is a very extensive um, support training designed for those who are coming without um, you know 2,000, 3,000 Airbus or Boeing hours and, and their training footprint may be a little bit leaner because of the experience that they bring. So that really has been designed to ensure that everyone who finishes their complete initial training will be at exactly the same point in case capability and knowledge um, so that I guess the end pilot product that's going out on the line and is flying um, with our captains or with our first officers if they're a direct entry captain um, is up to that same level so they'll experience everything before they're, they're not having the same online support from the training captains so that's a very cautious but um, I, I guess a very reassuring model for those that could be listening to think "What well, am I just going to get thrown the, throwing the keys to the Airbus and then away I go it's, it's not like that it is really supportive because of <laughs> course Um, the standards and the safety is is paramount for for all airlines and you know your reputation is based on that as we've seen from recent events globally it's you know it's it's make or break so um, it's taken very seriously
0: Now, simulation is obviously a huge part of any airline's training, and I know we've got Micah on the line as well. Micah, I know that you're madly studying for a a sim check at the moment. Perhaps uh, you could talk to us a bit about sim profiles and what you'd be looking for.
4: In my current role, and uh, for Andy uh, to be aware, I'm a first officer on one of those servo props. It's uh, above 10 tonne, and uh, usual twin engine, pressurized, all that stuff. So we do... The type rating course, probably much like any other airline, multiple sessions in the simulator, then we uh, get issued the type rating, then we do our line training and then we go back to the uh, simulator essentially every six months to do uh, a renewal once a year and the other one's just a proficiency check. Um, What's the Emirates model like for a pilot on either
3: of the types? Um, it's actually the same as what you've just talked about as well. Uh, once the initial training and type rating is out, that's also six monthly for, for doing the PPC and instrument ratings as well. So, yep, we, we follow the same model um, in terms of our sim side of things. We do use a, a different simulator profile for the recruitment simulator, um, and that's by design, but that is quite different to what, I guess, an Emirates line pilot will be going through, which is very typical and probably very similar to what you're doing in your current airline.
4: And just explain for the audience, what, uh, let's say uh, an applicant going through that profile, what would be the process involved in that simulator?
3: Yep. Um, so, so in advance, if, if they're doing the simulator, um, whether it's in um, Brisbane or over here in Dubai as well, because we also do a lot of overseas-based um, simulators as, as a stage one for our um, assessments, um, they'll be getting the information shared in advance by the pilot selection specialist who is um, a former Emirates pilot who could be working with them or, in fact, also. one of our TREs who do our recruitment sims. So we get great support from our training college for having um, current TREs doing that. And so they'd receive the simulator briefing pack um, in advance, at least a week in advance, so they can see exactly what's going to be happening. They'll be able to see um, some of the chart data as well. So we really want individuals to get um, the ability to to have a look, have a study, and be comfortable with it so there's no surprises. Then Normally what would happen is um, we try to put you on a, a simulator that's most aligned to you. So as I mentioned earlier, if, if you're coming in off note your controls, you're likely to go on a Boeing sim. Um, if you're side stick, you'd likely to go on the Airbus sim. Um, and then normally there's just three elements to the sim profile we use for recruitment purposes. Um, the First, some element will actually be takeoff and a bit of general airmanship as well. It'll uh, be flown manually using basic instruments, um, so no FD on that first element. And then there's normally a bit of a pause, um, a little bit of a debrief as well from from the TRE who's running the assessment as well. So it is quite interactive. In that element. Um, the second element to the recruitment sim is also an all engine raw data ILS as well so that'll be operating um, somewhere around London Heathrow, um, you'll be given runway specific information as well so you can see how, how the pilot um, deals with that situation and then the third and final element is really a line orientated exercise as well so it's going to have um, a problem which you may have to solve and require you to decide and manage all aspects to conclusion as well so um, you know you do want to see someone who, who's very technically capable to handle the aircraft or to show an element of trainability, which is I guess the purpose of the recruitment sim, but you also want to know that someone can communicate and have good communication and management models in place as well or the basis of those. It is designed for recruitment only, as I said. So it is designed to see an element of trainability and, and baseline level. But we also want to ensure that an individual will be coming in and they are very um, comfortable to use their own SOPs and process. There's no expectation whatsoever that any pilot will come in and know what what Emirates would do in terms of the SOPs and and comms model. So they just fly as naturally as they can using what their airline has trained them to be in, and then looking um, at the TRE will make the the overall assessment in terms of their suitability based on that. So we just want to minimize unnecessary um, stresses and deviations and make the pilot as as natural and as comfortable as they would be in their workplace so that we can try to get a real picture of of them as as an aviator. We recently, once we did um, open up the the pool of pilots who are eligible to apply to Emirates, we did redesign our simulator profile for that. So the idea was that now that we could have fantastic turboprop or business jet pilots um, applying to Emirates, we wanted to make sure... that the sim profile we're using is something that they would be as comfortable in as someone who's flying boeing or airbus for a large commercial airline as well um, so we reworked it for that very purpose so that you're not expected to come in and be a perfect Boeing pilot in terms of everything. But if you're able to show an element of trainability, then that's what we're looking for because we do have a significant training um, capability. In it. um, so we know that if we get the, someone with, with the baseline levels of skills and ability, then we can train them up and type rate them. So it really is a very different sim profile. Um, and we've had really good feedback from the candidates coming through as, as it's being much more natural for them as well than the one that was... Um, traditionally used in the recruitment side. Um, And we've also seen the turboprop guys, more so because we've seen more of them than the Bizjet guys, but the turboprop guys have been doing brilliantly. um, And certain elements have actually been doing better than the Boeing and Airbus guys as well. So the the feedback from the candidates and also our experience of guys coming through who haven't been flying a Boeing or Airbus has been excellent.
4: Uh, the clever um, the prop guys, I would imagine, uh, do quite a bit of hand flying as such, and do a lot of uh, non-precision approaches as well, is that
3: favourable in that regard? It, uh, absolutely. And, and when we're talking to any candidates and they're asking questions on um, you know, what they should do to prepare and everything like that, we do encourage them to do a little bit more manual flying uh, where they can. You know, Some airlines, you don't do much of it, so we do try to say, wait, once, once you actually can, try to get a little bit more of that in, because you're going to be a little bit more comfortable going through that that sim profile when you've had a bit of manual handling as well. So that's probably one of the the strong reasons we're seeing the TurboProp guys especially do really well in the sim Uh, for that exact reason. I think you're right there, uh, Micah.
4: Yep, you stated the minimum requirements in terms of flight time and experience um, flying various aircraft for candidates. Um, are you requiring a complete ATPL, Air Transport Pilot Licence?
3: Yes, so what we do require um, for day of joining, I guess when you first turn up if you're successful, is we do need a valid ATPL or or equivalent. Um, in North America, um, they, they call it something different, but that's, that's fine. But we do need it to be valid. So we do get lots of questions from guys who have got a frozen ATPL maybe they've got to do a couple of exams or they've still got to do a a line check depending on what airline um, they're flying for so in order to be eligible to join us it does have to be valid Um, and that's because of the GCAA so our licensing body over here in the Gulf that's a requirement from them Um, so that is quite an important element. We have seen individuals at our initial um, screening so if we're in Brisbane for example who have a frozen ATPL um, that element is okay but they have to be able to show us evidence that when they will be obtaining their full um, valid ATPL before we can actually bring them over to Dubai. So that's a legal requirement within the Gulf. Um, But it is a really good point uh, to clarify because some other airlines have different models in place in terms of uh, what licenses they accept.
4: And that's a great answer. And I purely ask because Australia has seen some uh, pretty significant changes over the past uh, 12 to 24 months with the uh, Part 61 rule. That's come into uh, Australian regulations. Um, so you're seeing a lot of uh, people here completing all the ATPL subjects, but uh, to be issued an ATPL license, you're now required to do a flight test, and uh, I believe that's still being sorted out at the moment. In some cases, the operator, i.e. the airline, can issue the ATPL flight test when they, let's say, upgrade a first officer to a captain. However, from what I'm trying to keep up with at the moment, it's still still somewhat of a grey area, You know, you'll, you'll still have plenty of candidates who've completed the subjects but uh, no license per say so, essentially a frozen, a frozen one yeah. for
3: one of a better comparison. Yeah, and, and it's really, it's really common in South America as well. Um, that exact situation. A lot of the main South American carriers will also have that same model where um, they will, uh, I guess, validate uh, the ATPL upon command. Um, so the individual could have the 1500 hours and they could have satisfied all the academic exam requirements, but the airline won't give them their check ride, just much like you've talked about, until they um, are promoted to. And that's obviously um, quite a cunning maneuver by the airlines. Um, also, to reduce costs, but also to have an element of retention, which, you know, for their individual business makes a bit of sense. So, there are, you know, areas to explore on, on which licenses can be taken, but it is always going to sit with the GCAA. You know, they're the ones who make all the decisions on that. So, we, we can explore the possibilities to have some more flexibility around some of those um, frozen ATPLs, but they will be the final adjudicator in terms of what they're willing to actually register. So it is an ongoing conversation, um, you know, in terms of being of interest for us. But at the current point in time, it does need to be valid um, by ATPL by the time that they join Emirates. So I I understand exactly where you're coming from, um, and it's it's that regulatory body's decision as opposed to the airline's decision, if that helps add a bit of clarity.
4: And the applications are open to first officers as well as? Uh, commanders,
3: yes. Yeah, So, so any pilot who meets the requirements can can apply. Um, we are at the moment, um, for a limited time, accepting direct entry captains on our on our Boeing Triple Seven. Um, but you know, as as with all airlines, um, that's not a, a model that we try to promote or, or sustain for long periods. Um, we really do like to to provide growth and career opportunities for our first officers, which we we absolutely do because that's why we've got so many aircraft on board. Um, that's the hard part is have enough first officers that we can actually turn into captains um, so that's why we're on um, you know, a positive recruitment drive but um, yes captains are, are, are available to join us as first officers as well so you can still come from a smaller uh, airline or regional carrier or even a larger airline and if, if you don't meet our DEC criteria you're welcome to apply as an FO um, and you know, command time is generally seen as a real positive aspect to someone because they've got that um, decision making experience as well so they can have quite sophisticated models and elements of response responsibility. Um, But we are taking DECs on the 777 at the moment as well. Um, But we're not too sure how long that will go on for. Hopefully uh, hopefully from um, um, our airline's position, it won't be for a long period, um, just to make everyone aware of that.
4: The, The typical time for a first officer to progress to a captain and I know there's so many variables involved but do you have an average number to say?
3: Um, yeah I can, I can give and again you know you've already said it but for the for the listeners just to be really aware that it does depend at the time so if, if we gave a little bit of a guidance now in two years time it could be much less or it could be the same so it is operationally um, based and um, does take a little bit longer on, on the A380 in terms of that side of things um, but what we do have if we're looking at a 777 fleet which is our largest and will grow to be uh, significantly uh, our largest as well. Um, Over the last few years it's been uh, around about between the four to five year mark before someone is getting their command upgrade and it could probably be around the the five to six year, uh, maybe a little bit less than that for the A380 fleets as well. So it is based on sort of time-based within the company as well so if you're doing lots of flying you'll be eligible for command um, quite quickly. Um, So we do have a much faster model for time to command than a lot of other of the larger national or legacy carriers as well. So um, the fact that we've just purchased uh, you know, around about 277 new aircraft mean there's going to be plenty of requirements for captains and plenty of requirements and opportunities for first officers to progress really quickly. Um, so you know as soon as new aircraft are coming on board you need more captains and so that means that that growth model is looking very positive for those who are looking to to come over and, and get their command as, as soon as they can.
4: Okay, um, typical in any professional pilot's life, they've had to move around the country as such, uh, looking for work or getting opportunities or that, but moving to a completely different country is uh, probably a bit daunting for, I would imagine, some applicants. Uh, does Emirates provide any support as such for um, expat heading over?
3: Um, yeah, in terms of, I guess, the the support that comes first and foremost is it's, everything is, is spoon-fed, um, you know the whole country but emirates in particular only really employs um expats you know 90 percent of our workforce would be expats so from all of the moving arrangements to getting your accommodation that you'll move into or um helping coordinate all of the visas and everything like that is just done and dusted for you so um you know while i'm in through the process all i need to do is you know get my degree attested um make sure i had some copies of my passport and then get on the flight which they'd booked and and come over and do it that way. Um, so so it really is quite simple. We've got our own visa um, processing in, in our headquarters. You know, We've got uh, everything that you'd think of in terms of it is already here, ready-made, because everyone who comes through requires it. So that side of it's very easy from the admin side of things. Um, in terms of support, uh, pilots who come over, um, Will all have the option to choose um, company accommodation if they want, um, and if they do want that, then they'll be located in a pilot community. Um, Emirates is is renting huge, sort of subdivisions and developments where it's just Emirates pilots and their families. Um, so you'll be living around amongst other people. So what that tends to have is a is a community aspect to it. So there'll be central points like gyms and swimming pools and and community centres as well. Um, some of the facilities also have schools where a lot of the kids go to um, really close by. So a lot of the kids will be going to the same schools, um, and of course, all those who are not flying, um, whether it's a husbands or wives or kids, will also have that element of everyone else is in the same boat around them in terms of that community. So, so that side of it is really quite um, quite open, I guess, in terms of it. Dubai is a really easy city to meet people because everyone's been in, in your shoes once you've moved here before. So that's what I found moving over personally. Is you know, if you find something you're interested in, um, get involved in, and you and it's really easy to meet people and settle down quite quickly. So even though who won't be flying and could be um, staying at home and looking after the kids or um, doing different types of roles, you'll be able to meet people who are in the same situation really quickly and, and really readily. And, the, and at least the size of the, the company means there's, you know, whatever com- uh, country you're from, there'll be plenty of people from that same country um, if that's the sort that you, you felt most comfortable with or wanted to speak your own language plenty of people who speak English so um, you know Aussies and Kiwis we don't really have to worry about that side of things so it's a very easy city to integrate in because English is spoken everywhere as the main language. Um, So there's no communication uh, challenges whatsoever Um, so that side of it is quite easy and administratively it's a well-oiled machine is probably the easiest way to describe um, I guess moving over here um, to start with the company.
1: So Andy, talking about the intake and, and so on, and you mentioned that you've got the 165 nationalities and Australians are in there. Are you seeing a larger number of Australian pilots coming in lately?
3: I think probably over the last, um, sort of my time in the job, so over the last year or so, we there's always been a good number of, of Australians coming to the airline. We've always had a really good relationship um, with Qantas as, as one of our co-chair partners as well. We get on really well with them and Australian pilots, um, you know, just. So everyone listening um, can, can feel quite good about themselves, has an excellent reputation uh, internationally, uh, genuinely really regarded as well trained, really safe, very good operators. So Australian pilots are in demand probably internationally for that background, um, which is positive. So we've we've always um, looked favorably in Australians and they've always performed really well Through our recruitment processes and they've always performed really well on the line um so yes we've seen australians interested uh in in emirates as well and we hope that continues because they make great safe pilots yeah i'm aware a number
1: of uh qantas pilots uh took leave without pay to actually come across to emirates when when qantas was uh was holding steady and not taking any more on and pulling back in a couple of areas when they went through a bit of a downturn in not too recent past so uh yeah good to know that that's happening now We've talked a lot about pilots. Uh, Andy, are you able to talk about cabin crew? Because some of our listeners are actually interested in the cabin crew side of it and uh, a friend of mine is actually cabin crew with Emirates so uh, I'm just intrigued to know uh, are you able to talk about entry requirements and what the company's looking for on that side of the uh, cockpit door? Yep,
3: yeah, yeah I can talk about cabin crew originally I, when I was going to come across uh, in terms of recruitment it was to manage the cabin crew portfolio um, but I was mm-hmm. lucky enough to have the opportunity to go into flight ops and pilots um, so yeah I can, I can speak around that.
1: It's mostly about the criteria for somebody who's thinking either an experienced cabin crew or someone who's had zero training at all. What, as Emirates looking for, like here in Australia, there's organisations, uh, particularly friends of ours up in Brisbane, who do a uh, training course that get people up to speed so that they've done 50 to 60, maybe even 80% of the training required for a cabin crew, and then it's up to the airline yeah. to just give them the, the remainder. Uh, do you yep. look for that, or, or uh, do you t- quite prefer to take people from zero and ab initio them up to the cabin crew?
3: It's a really good question, and, and we, we prefer to take them. Well, it's not a bad thing if someone has experience. Don't get me wrong, but it's absolutely not um, a requirement. We we have a large training capacity. Um, you know, we've, we've got a hundred cabin crew coming through for training uh, every week in terms of going on. So, so it's a pretty well established model that we take people with zero flight experience and, and train them up. And even if someone came in with um, previous experience of working as cabin crew from another airline they will get the same training much like we do with our pilots as well so to reassure anyone who's listening out there you don't need to have any experience in fact um, so don't feel like it's it's a driving need to go and do one of those courses necessarily to make you stand out the thing that will make you stand out as, a, as an applicant is um, is to be someone who who is smart um, who is really good with your communication um, you know English is the language of Emirates and English is the language of all of our flights as well so everyone has to speak fluent English to, to be an Emirates cabin crew. If you do speak another language that is absolutely a bonus as well because again Emirates is very international so if we're flying to any other country which has English as, a, as their language we need to have um, several native speakers in addition to the Arabic speakers that we have on our aircraft. So um, languages are really important in communication. Um, the things that you would expect you need to be smart and have a reasonable level of education so ideally having completed high school. Um, you do you need to have some experience and, and ability to work as part of a team, and to also to be really diligent in your job. You know, a cabin crew um, is not what some people perceive it to be as only in terms of a hospitality side of things. There's a huge safety aspect to a cabin crew's job in terms of making sure that uh, any incidents which may happen or safety areas uh, that is what they're trained to do. And, and the other hospitality aspects are probably the secondary focus for their training. So that's really important to know. So you have to be someone who is hardworking. Um, you can. Can do long hours as cabin crew for Emirates and, and other airlines as well because of course if we've just opened up a new direct flight from um, from Dubai international to Auckland which we're about to start um, flying as of tomorrow uh, then you could be doing 17 and a half hours on that flight of course you will get some time to sleep and rest but they can be long days but then of course you get the benefit of, of a nice uh, multi-day layover in, in Auckland um, so things like that you have to be compared to work um, team player uh, really good communication you've got to be friendly and you've got to have good customer service focus so if you've got any experience working in customer service whether it's in a bank or in a cafe or in any element then that work experience is advantageous to you if you're applying so It doesn't need to be um, cabin crew specific. It can be anything with customer service. So um, that's probably the best way to look at it. Um, You know, you have to be presentable uh, as well in terms of Emirates. So we we like people who are really friendly, very smiley, really engaging and happy to talk to people because everyone will be from a different nationality and come from a different background of of the passenger profile. So that's where we do have a lot of Australian crew flying for us. And because Australians, like New Zealanders, are big travellers, we do tend to have (laughs) um, quite good experience from having mingled with other countries. And, of course, Australia is very multicultural in itself now. So so those are the key areas um, when thinking about it. So it doesn't need to be a training course for cabin crew. It's just really about yourself and your work experience and your personality and your attitude as well. Yeah,
1: you're you're right that the primary goal and focus of the cabin crew is the passenger's safety. And way too many people have uh, forgotten about that. So everyone just sees that um, they're the waiters and waitresses in the sky, but there's a lot more to it than that. So, mate... um, Something that we spoke about before we really started recording is uh, your background is in occupational psychology. Are you able to uh, give us uh, an indication of what role that psychology plays in, in recruiting, both for cabin crew and tech crew? And do you also wind up using it when you're recruiting people in the in the non-flying roles, for instance, management, ground crew, things like that?
0: You know, podcasters, you know? <laughs>
3: Yeah, absolutely yeah i like so this is this is probably a whole other podcast if you're going to get me started to talk about psychology so i'll try to be really <laughs> succinct um in terms of, I guess, the, the listener's profile, so with cabin crew, um, it's a little bit quicker because we do such high volume cabin crew recruitment, you know, we need 5,000 cabin crew this year. If you think about it, that's a lot. We've got 20,000 cabin crew employed by Emirates already. Um, so in terms of that, the cabin crew will go through um, an everyday personality questionnaire as part of their recruitment process, and that's just used to give the, the interviewer and the recruiter a little bit more information around some of their preferences and their personality styles. It's not used in any way to select in or out. It's just helped to, to supplement um, as an additional piece of information for making that recruitment decision. Um, for, for other non-flying um, roles, and I'll come to flying last, I haven't forgotten it. So we use um, psychology and psychological uh, input for all senior positions within the company and all safety-related uh, positions. So if it's a, a lower-grade position, if it's safety-related, psychology will um, be involved in that. And if it's a senior position, so sort of um, middle managers and above, then there's specific psychological input. So we've got a team here of seven senior psychologists permanently within Emirates and also four uh, psychologists. And so there's a large in-house capacity to to do the psychometric proline, uh, profiling and interpretation for, for all candidates coming through. Um, so if you're an applicant and that's a pilot included, um, you'll, you'll be doing different types of psychometrics, looking at aptitude and personality preference. And then you'll also have a a one hour feedback session from one of our psychologists who will be giving you results and having a bit of a conversation with you to help um, you build your awareness up as well and also explore areas of alignment for the role. Um, so that's quite a specific um, part of the process some people get nervous about it but um, you know if you're out and working in business a lot of people would pay a lot of money for that type of insight so some people get a a real kick out of it Um, and so with pilots of course it has an extra focus on safety um, but I do want to take the opportunity to to try to debunk some of the myths that are really out there with with psychometrics there are ability tests um, so it could be a cognitive ability test yes with those absolutely you want to do as well as you can Um, but when you are looking at personality assessments there is no right or wrong and there is no good or bad the only reason someone can typically fail um, the the element of recruitment based around the psychometrics and how they answer is if they're not being open and honest Uh, psychometrics really are quite sophisticated nowadays that there are ways that you can definitely tell if someone is being a little bit more cautious and reserved and guarded or if they're actually being genuine and open and so the only way that it can really inhibit your recruitment prospects is if you are guarded because that information is conveyed quite clearly to uh, the recruitment panel, which includes a psychologist. So if you are open and honest, You're not trying to pretend that um, you're exactly who you think Emirates would be looking for, um, then you're going to have the best chance um, to get through the recruitment model. And I think that's where a lot of people fall down. They think, well, I can't answer this way, I have to do this because this is the pilot they would want. And that becomes really evident. And if we're going to take, you know, a brand new A380 or a 777 and and give it to one of our our new first officers and trust the lives of up to 600 passengers, we want to make sure we know who they are and that uh, they're being honest with us and we can have trust in that decision. So so being really transparent in how you answer the psychometrics is a really important part that, that people um, should be aware of and, and come feeling relaxed and comfortable and know that it's not going to mean they don't get the job, it's just going to have some information that they can help support um, their, the rest of the information that comes from the recruitment process.
1: Wow, that's pretty impressive stuff and I got to say, Andy, it sounds like you're not just reading that off a list of uh, of uh, statements <laughs> and so on. You really know your stuff on uh, on psychology and psychometrics and so on. Can you just tell us? I think is one last thing as before we ease out here because I'm conscious of time. Um, How did you get to your current position? You've mentioned okay. travelling around the world a lot with work. Uh, this is your background, isn't it? Occupational psychology. How did you get to to Emirates?
3: Yeah, I started off. Um, I did my my studies and stuff at Canterbury University in Christchurch, um, sort of after school, and then um, after doing a bit of what Kiwis call the OE, so the overseas experience and going, um, travelling the world and having a bit of fun and playing some rugby and seeing some of the world. Um, I came back uh, and joined the Navy after I did my postgraduate, um, and so I was in the New Zealand Navy as a as an we called it organisational psychologist, but it's the same thing um, for seven years, which is where I was doing all the selection and assessment, um, training and critical incident response for the New Zealand Defence Forces. So that was my background. And as part of that, it also included pilots, whether it's the Air Force pilots or the Navy helicopter pilots as well. Um, Then after that, I I worked for a couple of other companies, uh, New Zealand Telecom and then IBM, um, working with different businesses around, I guess, human performance on the job. Uh, And then. Uh, the opportunity to, to go work for an airline in a fascinating part of the world and do more travel, which is one of my key requirements in life, um, was too good to pass up. So I went and moved in a, as a senior psychologist for them. So we're involved in the pilot assessment, as I mentioned, the command upgrade coaching program has a lot of psychology built into it, um, executive coaching. And then natural alignment was I really wanted to work in the pilot recruitment side of things. I, I enjoyed the pilot aspect of my job as a psychologist with Emirates. So I wanted to do that a little bit more permanently. So that's when I segued and went into the recruitment role for for flight operations,
0: gee, Grant, we thought we'd travelled around the world a bit, but that, <laughs> that kind of trumps us, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess it, you know the the thing about being here is, is, for those who do love to travel, is that um, you can access one third of the world's population within a four hour flight, or, or two thirds of the world's population within an eight hour flight. So if you're thinking about us from Australasia and what we can do, you know, we can we can touch Asia. Well, you guys can maybe. New Zealand is a little bit more, uh, less likely. We can get to the Pacific, but but that's it, unless you're going on a significantly long holiday. But um, we can, from Dubai or from the Middle East, you can regularly just jump on a on a four-hour flight or a six-hour flight, and you'll be in continental Europe, or you'll be in and you know the Maldives or somewhere really interesting as well. So it does make um, short-term travel um, a real hub so that's probably one of the benefits of, of being here as well, you, you will get to see the world and even if you're not a pilot or a cabin crew who are the lucky ones who do it as part of their job you, you can still experience that um, so it is an interesting region.
0: Well just before we wrap up Andy I guess uh, we've done all this talking about recruitment, if somebody from this part of the world really from any part of the world is considering it what's the first step, where should they go to make uh, initial contact?
3: Yeah it's, it's a really simple process, um, if, you, if you Google Emirates careers it takes you to our career site um, and that's got a lot of information because you know it's a Big step to want to move to the Middle East because every every pilot or cabin crew does have to live uh, in Dubai. That's part of the model, um, but it is a really exciting place. It's it's much more sociable than 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 everyone would probably suspect. Um, it's a really interesting cosmopolitan place. So the first step would be make sure you do your research, make sure it is for you, um, you know what the region's about, how interesting it can be and, and that it's the right decision for you. Uh, and then all you need to do is, if you're a pilot, is complete an online application. It is quite detailed, but as you understand, there's a lot of technical aspects to a pilot's career and training and licensing. So and I get, a, get a, um, a cold beverage and sit down and, and take a little bit of time to do that right. And then what we do is, is every time we get new applications on, so um, every day of the week we go through and review them as part of the recruitment team and those who meet our our criteria, um, we'll put them into the shortlisting pool and then from that point we'll we'll contact the individuals and invite them to one of the assessments. It's a very lean model. The assessment could be a simulated screen um, an Abstract Compass done in Brisbane or it could be inviting you over for the full assessment model here in Dubai which uh, takes uh, three days. Um, So All you need to do really genuinely is complete the online application in detail and then sit back and wait. Um, And we're we're really efficient in terms of how we get them. So if you do meet our criteria, so make sure you do first so you understand your expectations, then um, we'll likely be in in contact with you just within a a couple of weeks. So it it is really quite a fast process.
1: I think I'm hearing Micah typing right now. (laughs)
4: No, no, don't tell my managers that one. And if any of my
3: bosses are, let's think. No, I'm pretty happy at Country Airlines. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll, I'll have a look on the online applications later and see if any pop up from Country he Airlines. He has the
0: most famous selfie stick in all of Australian aviation, Andy. I'll tell you. Well, Andy, uh, we really appreciate your time. That's been a, a fascinating insight into how uh, Emirates operates, and particularly, uh, you know, for so many people in this part of the world that are, you know, really uh, looking over to the Middle East and looking at all the recruitment uh, opportunities there. I must tell you that uh, looking at air, you know those TV shows like uh, Ultimate Airport Dubai. I think it's called, which uh, just have a look at the size of the facilities over there is just a fascinating part of the world to which I must admit I've never been, but uh, you know, we can change that one of these days. But uh, Andy, uh, I really hope we can talk again. Andy Longley is the recruitment uh, manager for flight operations at Emirates. He's been talking to us from Dubai today. And uh, Andy, let's talk again one day soon.
3: Yep, love to. Uh, it's been great talking to you guys. Um, thanks very much for, for helping set this up as well. Um, and any other topics of interest, I'll be happy to engage with you guys again. It's, it's been really useful and really interesting um, from my perspective too.
0: Fantastic. Well, for years, folks, we've been talking about Oz Runways and what a great EFP it is for iPad. But so many people have asked us, when are they going to make an Android version? Well, Baz from Oz Runways is with us and he's going to tell us all about some good news for all of you Android users. How are you, Baz? I'm good. Thanks, Steve. How are you? I'm very good. Now, uh, Runway, tell us about that.
5: Yeah, it's uh, simply called Runway by Oz Runways. And it's our product for Android tablets, Android phones, Android phablets. Those strange shaped devices that are too big for a phone but too small for a tablet and uh, it runs on all of those so we've talked
0: for many years Baz, about uh, waiting for the market to be right and obviously the uh, the android uh, tablets and devices have, have really taken off and so now is the time and i know you've put a lot of work into it you must be happy to have it finally in the marketplace
5: yeah we're really pleased with the result and, and as you said this year is just the right year for android it took a while for tablets, not phones so much. Phones for Android have been very popular for a long time, but for tablets to become really good devices, and they have this year, there's some great Android devices out. Android OS itself has been updated over the years and is now much more friendly for us developers to support all these different types of devices, which used to be a problem in the past. And so we've been able to, to do it this year and in a way that we're very happy with the way that it works and the way it performs.
0: Now Bez has got a different name from the iOS product. Is it exactly the same as Oz Runways on the iPad or are there differences?
5: There's definitely differences because Oz Runways, as you know, has been in development for over five years and it's a very mature product. This is a 1.0, but we've developed runway with the experience of those runways, which means that we've taken the best features, made them even more intuitive, and we're gonna build on that. So if you get runways now from the Google Play Store, what you'll get is all the maps, all the URSA AIP depths, the AOPA airfield directory, and the pilot's touring guide, it's all there. You can plan a flight, you can get your weather and NOTAM briefing, and you can use it as an aviation GPS, to navigate. So it's a really complete product and and we're just going to be building on that uh, well over the coming years really but uh, you'll see a lot of stuff being added even this year.
0: Now Bez, what if I'm someone who's uh, been using the iPad version for a long time and decides it's time to transition across, uh, is there a separate subscription or does one subscription cover everything?
5: It's one subscription covers everything. So the same subscription is available on both platforms, both iOS and Android. And you can still use one phone and one tablet per subscription. So if you have an Android phone and you want to keep using your iPad, that's great. If you've got your iPhone and have been eyeing that new Android tablet, uh, you can still keep using Runways on your iPhone and using Runways on your new Android tablet.
0: I can hear all the grand and Karen's of the world rejoicing as we speak, mate.
5: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's had a really good reception. And we've got many downloads just in the first few days. We've got lots of great feedback on the store. We've got a good idea of what we're going to be adding next because people have been telling us, okay, these are the features they want to see soon.
0: So, Bez, um, you know, you're very famous for the 30 day free trial. I assume that's still the case for the Android
5: version? Uh, very much so. Just uh, install it from the Google Play Store or from our website, osrunways.com and say start free trial and that's 30 days no limits on uh, what you can use all the data is there so you can give it a really good trial run before deciding
0: once again folks that's runway by oz runways a fantastic and longtime sponsor of playing crazy down under we really appreciate your support bez and uh, we we know it'll go really well for you once again ozrunways.com or find it in the google play store Hi, I'm Stephen Forrest from the Airspeed Podcast, and when I'm not producing a show, I'm listening to guys who are inverted all the time, playing crazy down under. Well, now, if you've been listening to this program for any amount of time, you'll know that there's nothing that you can do that's more fun than getting up in the air and going flying. But of course, we can't do that every day as much as we'd like to. So uh, I guess if you're unable to do that, the next best thing surely is to get out there to the airport, prop yourself at the end of the runway and just watch those jets fly over. Going on, and you can admit it, you're all among friends here. You know you've done it more than a few times. <laughs> I know I have. That, of course, gives rise to the ever-increasing popularity of aircraft photography. Well, back in the day, you had to rely on getting your photos accepted at some of the bigger sites, such as, uh, you know, airliners.net, jetphotos.net, that kind of thing. Never a simple proposition either, I might tell you. Well, of course, these days we've got social media, and that's really helped to get uh, many more wonderful aircraft photographers out there with so much wonderful work, and uh, there's so many dedicated groups on Facebook these days in particular that allow them just to do exactly that. Well, down here in Melbourne, uh, the recently opened T4 car park, probably by complete accident actually, has fast established itself as the ultimate spot for enthusiasts to get up there and set up their camera gear. There's outstanding views of the apron and the runway, and the images I've seen taken from up there, particularly on places uh, like the Melbourne Aircraft Spotters Group, well, they're just superb. Well, pretty quickly, unfortunately, this has led to uh, security staff getting up there and uh, asking photographers to move on, and we're seeing this happen more and more. They're citing concerns over security and safety, and uh, naturally this is leading to quite some angst in the enthusiast community. Well, does Melbourne Airport Management have an official position on all of this? Is there perhaps a way we can all get along, and is this perhaps just a bit of a misunderstanding all around? Well, let's find out, shall we? Joining us on the line is Melbourne Airport's Manager of Communications and Corporate Relations, Anna Gillett. G'day, Anna. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Steve. How are you? Not too bad this morning now. Uh, we're seeing uh, some people having a bit of a misunderstanding with security staff there getting up there on the T4 car park and uh, taking photos. Does Melbourne Airport have a, an official position on photographers using that area or really any areas around the airport?
6: Look, We we do. So in terms of um, the car park, we're more than happy for people to park the cars and go up and, and take photos. Um, however, my, I would just say please be aware that it is first and foremost a car park and so for us that means that safety comes first because that means moving cars so um, we're happy for people to go up but if we get to a stage where there's groups of you know 20 odd people um, up there, 20 odd people in a group and moving cars are, are never a good thing so for us it'll come down to safety and safety will always be our number one priority in an operational area like that. So please be careful, but absolutely, you're more than welcome to go up there and take some photos. Um, I know there have been some uh, miscommunications before and that's been brought to our attention. So we've actually spoken to the security guys um, and they are actually doing their job there. They do need to be diligent, but we have spoken to them and said, yes, we're happy for people to take photos. But obviously, again, if they ask you to move on, we simply just ask you to comply with their request um, because they would be asking for us for in terms of a safety or an operational issue. Um, if they do ask you and say that photos are not allowed, please just say that you've heard from me, or that um, you understand that, that you can take photos, um, and um, I'm sure they'll be happy. If not, um, please ask them to call me, and they will do that.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! And uh, you know, the thing is, I wonder when you're talking about safety, would it would it be something that perhaps um, photographers could um, have some facility where perhaps they could register with the airport, or should they be wearing perhaps uh, reflective vests, things like that, that you know, tell people that hey, we are up here, and we're not just here to park our car. We're here Going to take photos?
6: Yeah, look, as I said, we're more than happy if people want to, um, if people would like to wear a reflective vests, um, we're happy for that. In terms of registering, um, again, we don't, um, we, we love the fact that people take like taking photos and some of the photos, most of the photos are actually brilliant. Um, so we're really happy for that to happen, but we also don't want to make it exclusive for those who haven't registered as such. So we're happy for people to go up and take some photos. As I said, please just watch out for cars. And we will continue to sort of watch the situation. And if we do get feedback that um, it is becoming a bit difficult to manage and people are concerned, of safety, concerned about safety, then we may need to restrict. But it's, it's certainly not about stopping people taking photos. Um, obviously, if there are people taking photos of highly secure areas and the security procedures, that becomes a different thing. Um, but people who are just there to enjoy the view and enjoy the planes, absolutely, we're not there to stop anyone doing that.
0: The thing is, too, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the good old days when we had the observation deck there, and people could come up and do that. Well, I guess by default, um, this wonderful new T four car park is it's, it's almost reinstated that, hasn't it?
6: Well, it, it, unofficially, potentially, yes. Yes, unofficially, um, we'd love to yeah. have that um, viewing area back as well. Um, but unfortunately, we're not allowed to. It does present a bit of a security risk where it was. So, as I said, happy for people to use um, the car park if, if they do um, want to take photos. We just ask people to be aware and to take care um, and, and we'll take it from there essentially.
0: It's interesting. Um, I, I note with great interest a few years ago that Perth Airport has really embraced the aircraft, um, the spotting community, I guess, and set up a, a dedicated area just off the runway there so that they can take photos. I know that Melbourne Airport uh, has around there on the operations, right? I think it is the one that leads up to the control tower. We've got a great spot there where you can sort of be side onto the runway. The one that I like and a lot of photographers like actually isn't an official spot, and that's the uh, the approach on my three four. It's but uh, it'd be great if they yes. could uh, make some land there. I can tell you,
6: yeah. Look, um, and we have looked at other viewing areas, um, and then every time we looked at a viewing area, um, we realised that it was about to be built out. So um, I'm sure you're aware we've we've had a little bit of construction going on, and and we will continue for a little while um, because first and foremost we need to get passengers on and off those planes. Yeah. Um, so that will be our priority. But yet, look, we as a So we have been looking at how we can um, make the best of the views that we are so fortunate to have, um, but we still haven't come to a solution. So we'll continue to look at that and be sure that if we do come to um, a great um, solution on that one, I will give you a buzz and happy to talk people through it.
0: I'll tell you what, I've often said, if I was ever lucky enough to have a job like yours out at the airport, then uh, productivity would probably go to zero because uh, being an aviation spotter myself, (laughs) I don't think I'd get any work done.
6: Yeah, it's it's great. I do have some um, friends who who are pilots but not here, and uh, who are busting to get on the airfield. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to just take anyone on the airfield, but it's great. And I'm I'm sorry to say, not an I'm not a huge aviation fan, but gosh, when I get onto that airfield I really I do I do know what makes it so enticing. It's 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 great to say the least. And I think we forget how lucky we are to work here and have the access that we do sometimes.
0: Oh, it's wonderful. Now I'm gonna to have to put out a uh, call out to all our community here at Playing Crazy Dan under we need to turn Anna Gillett into an aviation fan. I'm sure we can do it. <laughs>
6: Oh, I'm well on my way, I assure you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I appreciate that. And I, I know the community, there's, there's, some people have been a, a bit upset about it. But I think, um, as we discussed before we started the interview, I think it was just a bit of a misunderstanding. And I, I really uh, think that's cleared it up. I wonder if we could yeah, talk look, uh, just briefly about the, uh, the T4 itself. It's been in operation now a couple of months. How's that been working out?
6: Yeah, it's been, it's been really great. Um, we know that um, it's, a, it's a bit of a change for some people. I will openly say that um, some people have got lost around the car park area and transport our hub area and look we get that it's new it's completely different particularly for some passengers that have gone from one end to the other but it's actually we really like it it's, it's working really really well um bit of a change in behavior on a couple of things first of all that when you get dropped off you don't get dropped off Outside the door. Unfortunately, today's changing environment means that that's just really not viable and a viable option anymore. So people do get picked up and dropped off within the transport hub. And the other thing, um, and I'm sure people who have flown out of there may have noticed, we're using what we call a call to gate model in, in the new terminal forks. It's a model that's used um, throughout, the, um, throughout the world. I think it's Heathrow, Changi um, and maybe Copenhagen as well use it where to get the best efficiency out of the airfield, we don't allocate gates until we actually have to. So that means if, if people are, are planes are late or for whatever reason, we can allocate an available gate as opposed to having to a pre-allocated one. So that means we really ask people to wait within that departure lounge area as opposed to waiting down at a particular gate. So if people wait in that area and then as soon as we have a gate and that's um, the most efficient way to do it, we'll put it up and then tell, it, tell people how long it is before they need to board. So I know there's some confusion about why there's limited seating down at the gate. That's why. It's actually making it about more efficient, trying to make it more comfortable and efficient for our passengers. So we apologise for any confusion around that, but we do think it's the best way to go forward in terms of efficiency, So it's, and it's working really well so far.
0: So it's, it's really just about having a bit of a change in mindset, isn't it? I mean, as you say, yeah. we're, we're all used to going through security and waiting at the gate, but uh, this is a bit different.
6: Yeah, yeah, um, it is. A little bit different, and I I have to say, um, people are really enjoying the uh, options of shopping down there. I, for one, as a staff member, love it. Um, (laughs) So there's some different shopping in there. I'm
0: going to keep my wife away from there then.
6: I am not taking part in that conversation. Um, (laughs) um, But, yeah, no, so it's really great. The shopping's great and it it is working really well. Look, there'll always be some um, feedback that we have to work on and some little minor glitches and things like that, but there's nothing major and we're really happy with it. And the feedback we've been getting from everyone is that most people are pretty happy with it
0: too. Well, I'll tell you what, Anna, I'm always happy any time I have to come to the airport. (laughs) I know a lot of people are not, but uh, it's always a thrill for me. My biggest regret is that I live on the other side of the city and I can't always get up there. But, uh, anyway... That's a cross yes, cross we have to I, I
6: just have that that regret as well.
0: <laughs> no problem, well, Anna. I really appreciate your time, and I know the members of the uh, you know the enthusiast community here really appreciate uh, just getting that uh, clarified for them. And we really appreciate your time today.
6: Not at all. Thank you for having me, and um, apologies for any miscommunications or misunderstandings regarding the photos. As I said, we've spoken to the team, and we hope that it's all sorted now. But if not, please come back to me, and we'll see what we can do.
7: No worries. Thanks very much for your time, Anna.
6: Thanks very much, Steve.
7: Nicholas Scaife, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under.
8: Thank you for having me.
7: You've just done something pretty impressive. You've taken out the world's first women's hot air balloon world championship, haven't you?
8: I have, yes, about three weeks ago in Poland.
7: That's very impressive. Uh, First ever time it's been a women's only event and... uh, Here's Ms. Nicola Scaife from Australia taking it out and uh, well done, congratulations. Been meaning to say that to you for a while since we first (laughs) heard the news. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Now now you're back here in Australia and uh, I imagine life is very much as it was before, but uh, how are you settling in? How does it feel after you've won that big event?
8: Yeah, it's a really strange thing. I'm just back here at home in the Hunter Valley and back to work, but I think it's, it's slowly sinking. In. I don't think it's all completely registered yet, but um, yeah, I'm having moments of, oh my gosh, I've just won the <laughs> world championships, but yeah, it's all...
9: Look at,
7: look at this trophy on the shelf. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
8: that's right.
7: <laughs> so Nicola, what got you into flying? How, what, what, what gave you the bug that suddenly you felt you wanted to get altitude?
8: really i never really sort of had an interest i guess in any sort of aviation as i was growing up i wasn't sort of yeah really into to anything but um i just fell into it so i was i was living in canberra and um had the opportunity to go for a, just a commercial balloon flight yeah from that day that was that was it i love i loved the flight and i asked my pilot on the morning if, if he had any jobs and luckily for me he said yes so that was the start really
7: so who was, who was the pilot you flew with? Which company?
8: Um, I, was, I flew with a company called Dawn Drifters, and my pilot was Alan Shaw. He and Jackie ran the company, and yeah, they were just fantastic. I don't know exactly what he saw in me that morning. I'm, I'm a pretty slight <laughs> person, so um, he said, yes, come along and start driving the vehicles to retrieve the balloons and um, work in our office, and from there, nothing was a problem. They were really, really great employers and encouraged me to get my license.
7: That's awesome. And um, so roughly what year was that? Uh,
8: 2006.
7: So you, you just suddenly discovered this was it and you what you wanted to do. So you started off working in the office and driving retrieve vehicles. And, and how long did it take you to get your license?
8: Probably took me another 18 months or so to get my mm-hmm. PPL. Yeah. And in that time, I moved from from Canberra up to Byron Bay to another balloon company up there. So it took me, yeah, it took a while, which is obviously if you're, if you're working with a balloon company, when the weather's fine, you're out flying, or they're mm-hmm. out flying and you're out working. So to get the slots of good weather and everything aligning in terms of big borrowing and stealing equipment and asking for an instructor <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it took a little bit to come together, but yeah, it was worth it for sure.
7: You did a lot of training in the um, Canberra area. Did you go to Mildura or any other locations for training?
8: I did actually most of my training probably in Byron Bay, really. So Really? No, I did mm. I'd never really had a chance to get down to Mildura, and I know that I have the sort of the training week down that away as well, but no, most of my my training was just done in Byron Bay and um, Mm -hmm. around the hinterland there.
7: Which company were you flying with, uh, or sorry, working with and learning with it at uh, Byron?
8: there's only one up there, so it's Byron Bay Ballooning.
7: So you're in there and you've finally got your private pilots and you've got your license to learn, as they say, and you need to get about 75 hours or so to start doing your commercial training. So how did you go about accruing the hours? Was it any time you weren't working, grab a balloon and scrounge up a crew and get out into the country?
8: Yeah, pretty much. I also moved a few times when I was getting those hours up so from Byron Bay I moved up to the Gold Coast and worked for balloon down under and yeah I've got quite a few hours up there out at bow desert not on the coast itself um yeah out about an hour sort of inland yeah. and then down to Camden so and that's where I got my yeah I finally sort of finished off the hours and then headed down to um, Canberra to do my commercial check flight with John Wallington and I uh, was a commercial pilot.
7: So who, who was your first employer as a commercial pilot and what were you flying?
8: Um, my first employer was Balloon Aloft and I've stayed with them now all the way to now. So, um, And I was just flying an 84, so myself plus two. We didn't have a, sort of a bigger balloon. That was still in my class. So yeah, I'd do VIPs, lots of proposals and romantic flights.
10: <laughs>
7: Back then especially, it was um, a lot of guys and not a lot of ladies, especially in the commercial operations. Did you feel much uh, much pressure or any issues being uh, one of the few ladies flying commercially?
8: Yeah, I think when I got my license, it was just myself and um, Ruth Wilson who had mm-hmm. our commercial licenses. So yeah, there was only a couple of us about, but... I think I was just really lucky with the people that I was working for and I think that they could see that I was a pretty capable person and that I was just, the enthusiasm was there so nothing yep. was ever really an issue. Um, I got, I kind of got a bit more, I guess a bit more stick from just, you know, driving vehicles and things. I, I was never, I never drove the vehicles correctly but <laughs> I was okay flying the balloons. So.
7: <laughs> Good in the air but on the ground, yeah, we'll talk.
8: <laughs> yeah, exactly, pretty much, yeah. So, yeah, I think, yeah, uh, yeah I, I didn't really, I mean, it was a bit of an odd thing to kind of be female at the start
9: yeah. when
8: I was sort of starting out. I was I was very young as well. I was only 23, I think. So, yeah, I think the age thing was also a bit of an issue. But it was mainly, um yeah, it wasn't really from the industry. It was mainly my passengers who were sort of, you know, checking all my credentials before they... <laughs> Got to the launch site and jumped in the balloon
7: with me yeah that was the next question was because I mean yeah, as you said there was yourself Ruth Wilson there was also uh, Jenny Horton I believe was running uh, commercial operations some time back in central Victoria but um, okay so you, there's not many ladies flying commercially and I, I know even now in um, airliners you know a number of people will be like what my captain is a lady you know so as you said you have passengers I imagine there were a couple of double takes but and also Nicola I've got to say you're not the tallest person around Uh, you're a a lovely petite young lady and um, I've seen you flying a a very large like 20 passenger balloon up there in the Hunter Valley and seeing you running the two fans and getting everyone on board and flying this balloon it's quite amazing so I'm guessing you had a couple of double takes from people
8: yeah yeah I mean there's always there's always a few people out there who sort of yeah they they have a bit of an issue with with a female Mm. pilot but I think that was I kind of actually enjoyed the challenge, really, so I sort of took it upon myself to make sure that at the end of their flight, they just, you know, there was no issues and they just, I had them sort of. I don't know, around my little finger, I guess. <laughs> like,
9: <it's, laughs> Excellent. And that
8: was, yeah, I think that was kind of part of the fun of it at the start. Just, yeah, to make sure everyone sort of realized that, hey, this, you know, it's not actually a problem. But I think even I would have probably done a bit of a double take if my pilot was me. <laughs> <If> that makes <laughs> any sense, you sort of think. It was always the first group of passengers. They never found out that they were the first group. But, um, yeah, sort of, if you're confident and, yeah, I knew what I was doing.
7: And so you started off, of course, you had to build your hours to get from being a commercial pilot in the Class 1 balloons. Did you go to Class 2 or, and then 3, or did you go direct to Class 3, the 240s and so on and upwards? Or
8: I skipped straight to a Class 3, just... Only because we just didn't have a balloon, a class two balloon. So I just didn't really have an option. So that for me is probably the biggest jump. So going from a two-person balloon um, up to a, I think I was carrying 10 people. So that was a bit of an exciting time. But yeah, it probably (laughs) took me, I don't know, I guess another sort of 18 months to two Mm -hmm. years to even jump that far. Just getting those hours in in a small balloon, it takes a while. Mm.
7: Yes it does Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know I know where I'm at trying to crawl my way just to a commercial at the moment It's and, and of course you're going from an 84 which is of course an 84,000 cubic foot balloon and you know in the ballooning world that as you said is kind of small U plus 2 and then um, class 3 is the 210, 240 so 240,000 cubic feet you've just gone through a triple increase in the inertia and the amount of air that's in that envelope. How did you yeah. find it? What were the big things you had to be focused on going from a, a, a relatively zippy like almost a sedan to a, a a, um, a rather large bus.
8: Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it really is like that. In the smaller one, you're sort of like, oh, okay, I want to go down there now, and you do. But in the bigger one, you have to be a lot more on top of things and predicting things as you're as you're flying along. And yeah, I think that was the biggest. Thing to start with just that slow kind of flying whereas with the little one you, you just had a lot more options I suppose yep. even with finding a place to land you know in a little one you can really kind of go anywhere but the bigger ones you really needed that bit of extra space to, to put it down so you could pack it all away.
7: Yeah you got a bit more lag with the inertia as well I guess so you, you've got to think a lot more ahead of the balloon too.
8: Exactly Yeah. And then, I mean, the other big one was just passenger management. When you've got two people there, it's easy and, and it's great and you can have a really great time. And it took me a while in the bigger one to sort of realise I'm not going to be able to give that you know, that exact same experience to 10 people, otherwise I'm not even going to be really flying the balloon. You know? so,
7: You're a tour yeah, guide.
8: <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. So that was, that was a big sort of step, learning step as well.
7: And so then after the 2.40, more hours, more time, was this still all in Canberra?
8: No, so that was in Camden. Oh, in Camden. Um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I just did my check flight down in Canberra. Yeah. So I got my hours up mostly in Camden, and then I we moved into the city, and so I was sort of midway-ish between Camden and the Hunter Valley. I started doing a bit of flying in the Hunter Valley as well. I pretty well went wherever I was needed between the two. Mm -hmm. So when you're the bottom pilot in the ranks, you sort of go wherever (laughs) you can to get those hours. So there was lots of driving. (laughs) Oh, we send Nicola this week. (laughs) um, Then I completed my hours to go from the group, 3, um, Group 4, up here in the Hunter Valley.
7: And so what are you flying in the Hunter Valley now? It looks pretty big.
8: It is big, yeah. I'm flying, mostly flying a 350, so that's a 16-passenger balloon. But yeah, it varies. I can be flying a 350 on, on one day and then the next day be flying a 160, so a bit of a variation.
7: And it was during this time that you, you met Matt while you were flying with Balloon Aloft, wasn't it?
8: Um, actually, I met Matt right at the very start. I met him in Canberra when I first started ballooning. I met him in Canberra and then we've sort of done all the travelling together to the, the various balloon um, companies and he's sort of done a bit of flying and I've done crewing and we've squeezed in my training and everything in between as well. So we've moved, we moved to the to Camden, and then eventually up here to the Hunter Valley because um, it's his parents' business. So that's kind of where all the stakes fit in, I suppose. <laughs>
7: And so you've you've married into a ballooning family, but you're already into ballooning beforehand. So uh, yes. the two of you both fly. You've got a delightful young young son named Hugo, who's at this stage around fifteen months. So that's a bit of a handful. When the two of you are, uh, do the two of you fly at the same time, or does uh, on the in the mornings, or does one fly one day, one fly another day to juggle the Hugo, or how do you work that?
8: Yeah, it's a bit of a juggle sometimes. Um, on the weekends, we're we're usually very busy, so we it's all hands on deck. Yeah, like this morning we were both flying and yesterday as well, yeah and then during the week if I go for a flight Matt will be here looking after Hugo and then vice versa so it's a bit of a juggle but we're lucky we've got we've got some great people that are willing to wake up at crazy o'clock in the morning to come and <laughs> come and look after Hugo but sometimes if we don't we don't get someone he's he's just strapped into the back of the retrieve vehicle in his baby seat and he's, he's, he's pretty a ballooning good. baby to be sure yes yeah he has no choice poor kid <laughs>
7: uh, that's awesome and uh, I mean some people say they they like to work with their partner some people say they like to uh, you know have that time at the office apart so that they've got their own separate lives a little bit I guess for the two of you it's this it's not just the same company it's the same actual activity in terms of being pilots and so on so I'm guessing for the two of you that works out pretty well and everything's everything's a lot of fun so well done
8: Thanks. Yeah, it is a bit of fun. Yeah, it's sort of um yeah, being able to share such a great thing with your life partner is pretty pretty special. So cool. yeah, we get to yeah, have quite a few adventures.
7: Do you, do the two of you ever wind up in the same balloon at the same time?
8: Not often these days. When I was learning Matt had his instructor rating, but we worked out pretty quickly that that wasn't gonna work for
9: us.
8: Yeah. We had a few flights together and then it was like, okay, we're going to need to find someone else here because even yeah. though I was the student, I did no best a lot of the time
7: and uh, no I couldn't imagine that happening oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course uh, Matt is currently the Australian champion having won the Australian nationals recently and now you've won the uh, women's worlds that means that next year at Northam the two of you will be competing I would imagine and uh, in, yep. in 2016 at saga in Japan for the next open worlds the two of you will be competing is this going to be cooperative team scafe kind of world in terms of uh, you know if we've seen team scafe here and there where it's been you know, you've flying or him flying, but now it's both of you are going to be flying. How's this going to work yeah. out?
8: No, it's going to be good. It will be good. I think having someone in the air with you on your team is, is pretty invaluable, so, and we both know that. So we're both going to be working to each other's advantage, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, we're both extremely competitive which makes the interesting times in our household sometimes. At the end of the day we're competing against each other and I'm going to be giving it my all for sure. <laughs> won't be giving too many secrets away.
7: But of course this, this now also does increase the complexity. Before it was one balloon, one pilot, the crew, Hugo of course and and you'd be out there and one of you'd be flying the other be on the ground and, and it'd be team scape go 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 but now all of a sudden you've got to organize two competition balloons, you've got to organize two crews, uh, babysitter for Hugo you go has that just put the complexity through the roof when it comes to getting to northern and western Australia or getting to uh, saga in Japan
8: yeah it's a massive operation I mean we did um, we were both flying at the Australian nationals this year so that was that was kind of the first time that we had to, to arrange everything um, and it's a big big team so like you said we've got our own crew our own balloons a babysitter and all that kind sort of thing so it's a lot of organization but I find that you kind of get through that stressful organization part then the actual flying and when we're there it's a lot easier to yeah it's just it's easy it just kind of goes really well and smoothly or generally as smoothly as possible (laughs) But yeah we're gonna have a have a bunch of bunch of us heading across to northern um, next year we're already kind of in the plans in planning for that
7: by the end of a competition everyone's getting a bit ragged because you're you're flying morning and night so you're not getting a lot of sleep at night you're not morning and evening afternoon evening You've got to try and get a siesta here and there, and you're going to be juggling Hugo as well. So imagine by the end of the, the comps earlier this year, you must have been pretty glad when it was over in a way.
8: Yeah, yeah. At the end, you're just completely exhausted. It's, I think at the the world this year, I think I must have lost a few kilos. Just of just you're just kind of go 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 all the time, and as you said, you're trying to catch a bit of sleep here and there, and yeah, by the end of it, you're just yeah, you're ready for it to be finished. That's for mm. sure, and ready for as much sleep as you can possibly get with a 15 month old.
7: Yeah, well, that's the other factor. I mean, I've I've watched people who have been competing in nationals when it's just them with their team and they're getting a bit ragged by the end but it's the two of you plus Hugo so wow I mean my hat's off to you for doing it and I'm also (laughs) going to say I'm a little scared to hear that you lost a couple of kilos there's not a lot of kilos to lose there Nicola. (laughs) (laughs) No (laughs) I
8: know that's part of the new training I'm going to have to to bulk up a little bit before the next competition I think.
7: bit more mass in the basket huh
8: yeah that's right
7: (laughs) well that that leads on to a very uh, important stuff for many of the people who are listening here I mean of course you and I being balloonists and being into the competitions and so on we know what it's like but there's a lot of people out there who are listening right now scratching their head going how on earth do you compete in a balloon you don't have an engine you can't control your steering you're just at the mercy of the winds as they say let's take a little bit of time and talk through what is a ballooning competition
8: Every balloon competition has an event director. So they're the ones that will be setting tasks before each flight. So you generally fly usually about a week long competition and you're generally flying morning and evening. So before each flight, you'll you'll have your task briefing and um, you'll be given a, a, a task sheet with certain maybe between say three and five tasks on it that have been set by the director based on the wins that he's seen and what he thinks is achievable in that flight. And then, yeah, you're sort of, you have your briefing and then you're released to go and get on with it.
7: So what's a task? Um, you're going to, they give you a few tasks. What could they be?
8: Yeah, so tasks are generally um, coordinates of a cross or, uh, say, a road intersection. And the idea is that you you need to navigate to a point and you throw a weighted streamer down onto it onto the cross or to the intersection and you're measured to the center of the cross or, or the intersection so closest is best and you get a thousand points and then um, everybody else is sort of graded below that.
7: Yeah and I understand at the world's that you talk about being closest to the cross and when I was playing around with this at Mildura recently it was like you know who was within a couple of meters of the cross was pretty good and whereas I believe at the world's level it's down to centimeters.
8: Yeah it's amazing if I mean and even I'm still kind of astounded by how accurate people can throw one of those markers and how close you do get even after say a, a two and a half, three hour flight and you're still managing to get yeah within metres or centimetres of, of a point that might be have been set you know 12 kilometres away. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing considering you yeah. can't steer a balloon.
7: Yeah, all you can do is go up and down and get the different winds and know that you're going to have cold air close to the ground or you might get different winds in the lee of those trees or coming off that hill and I, I know at Mildura with the contour flying you'd be over the top of a dune, uh, or the, the land would undulate and you'd go yes. left on one side of the top of the crest of this one meter high undulation you go right on the other it was just insane
8: yeah and extremely frustrating as well, <laughs> when that happens I think you know, we had a exactly. task at the world championships and there was just a cross and it was great and we're flying along and well, I was flying along and I thought okay I could see the balloons ahead of me they're all sort of peeling right so I adjusted and got myself into what I thought was just the most Perfect position, and Matt even said from the ground he was sort of secretly pumping his fist and going, "Yep, yeah, she's right in the slot." And then I just went left. <laughs> no, no. Everybody went right. Everybody on the right side went right, and everybody on the left side went left. And the cross just sat in the middle. And yeah, it's just one of those things you can you have the skills to get there, but sometimes luck like, is all part of yeah. it as well.
7: So the tasks you can be allocated. I, I mean, I've, I've heard the typical ones are uh, you, you all take off at a certain point, and you've got a, a like a judge declared goal. You've got to hit your mark there but but then they can let you have um pilot declared goals after that isn't it where you select one of three goals you're going to go for and tell them i know in the old days you used to actually write it on the streamer which of your goals you was going to be your next target and you drop your marker at the judge goal then you get marked on how close you got and and what's a hesitation waltz though
8: a hesitation waltz is similar to a JDG, but you're given multiple targets as you just said the JDG is just the point that's been declared by the director a hesitation waltz you'll be given maybe two or three points. And so, yeah, it is a hesitation. Well, sort of you're flying along and then you have to decide which of those you think is the most achievable for you and, and you go for that point. So um, you don't have yeah. to declare it beforehand or anything. You just fly and, yeah, choose the one best for you, I suppose. Okay. Yep. And then we have have other things, um, 3D tasks. They're kind of, well, they're not new to me because I haven't been competition ballooning that long, but they're sort of a new-ish kind of task Whereas you'll get a sort of a 3D shape in the sky that you have to achieve the longest track point in yeah so that's kind of that's a bit of fun to get your head around as you're flying along as well and it's usually thrown in there to kind of to get you thinking and to sort of maybe steer you off, off course for the, the following task that they may have set as
7: well so there's quite a complex amount of things it's it's really being able to get your balloon to be exactly where you want hold the altitude you want shift altitude by even just as little as 10 feet let alone 50 feet to get different directions it's, it really is a demonstration of of mastery of your balloon, isn't it?
8: It is. Yes, my competition balloons are sixty, so sixty thousand cubic feet um, capacity, and and it is. It's just like a zippy little sports car, and if you can master, if you're sort of, if it's you sort of flying the balloon, and you're the one that's really making it do what you want to do, then that's mm. a big part of it, definitely.
7: So why why did you decide you wanted to compete? What got you into competition flying?
8: I am just an extremely competitive person by nature. It's just something I've always, always had. And so I started ballooning. And then when I realized that you could compete ballooning, I just thought, this is just for me. It's just what I need. So um, when I was working at Byron Bay Ballooning, I went down to Benalla for the Nationals. I think that was 2007 yep. or 8, maybe 7. So Thomas was doing the commercial rides for the event. So I was um, I was crewing and I just, yeah, I got to sort of experience it a little bit and see, see what it was all about and just thought, this is just fantastic! I just, I was really taken with it. Like I was already sort of like that with ballooning, but then I was like, "What? I can compete as well! This is amazing!" My two two favorite things. <laughs> so it took me a little while after that, though. So I think it was, um, yeah, my first competition was last year, so 2013. So it took me five years plus just to yep. sort of get to a point where I was lucky enough to be able to, yeah, to go and compete, and um, yeah, it was everything I hoped for. <laughs>
7: Well that does raise the question of how do you train, I mean I've heard some of the guys in the States where they've got so many different balloon events going on all over the country that they'll get 20, 30 training flights, serious competition kind of things within the US in a year before they come over to the world, some of our guys and girls over here are lucky to get three or four, how do you train, is this something you can do while you're flying commercially?
8: Yeah, oh, it's amazing there are people um, in the northern hemisphere and the events that they've got. They're very, very spoiled and definitely practice makes perfect. So um, to be able to just be continually going to competitions and yeah, and honing your skills at an actual competition is is invaluable. Yeah, unfortunately we're over here. We're a bit sort of not as lucky. So yeah, we. We have the nationals and we're lucky to have maybe one or two other events in the year. So I guess before an event's coming up, I tried to just with throwing the markers... So that's okay. just an accuracy thing that you just you get better at obviously as you as you practice more. But but yeah, it's just a matter of also then when I'm not flying, getting out in the little balloon, which which is really hard, you know, baby and flying commercially, you don't you don't get too much time into yeah. that
7: practice. So it's, it's it's clearly it's very hard to train. And yet here you are. You're, okay, so you're very competitive, so that's good. You've been flying quite a bit as a commercial pilot. Yeah, you are you can set yourself up some targets to fly, but you're flying a bus, you're not flying your little sports car. How how did you go in the Nationals this year, that was in uh, just after Easter. I can't, I must admit, I didn't bring up the records. How did you rate on that?
8: I came fourth at our Nationals this year, which I was extremely, extremely happy with. I think, for me, the most exciting part of sort of my future, I guess, with competition stuff is that I really just haven't done that many competitions. So that Nationals was my second competition, and I'd sort of set my year up to have a couple of events before the World Championships. So I had the Nationals in April, and then I went over to the UK and did the UK Nationals in August. And then, yeah, that was a really nice lead into the to the world a couple of weeks later. But I think there's, if there was any way that I could sort of get get overseas before some events and do some events as practice, I think it would just be really good. I mean, you just every I'm still learning every flight. I'm learning new things, and oh, okay, so if that task happens like this. You know, now I know for next time that I won't do it that way, or I'll do it this <laughs> way. And I mean, people, yeah, people with a lot more more experience sort of have that that advantage in a way. Yep. Yeah, but I guess sometimes that experience doesn't help because <laughs> I didn't do
7: too badly. But. Yeah, here's the thing: you're, you're compared compared to the others in the global stage, you're relatively inexperienced. You're not getting a lot of chances to train, but you were still able to get out there and you led the pack like right from the start. It wasn't that you came from the back. It wasn't that people fell over like the famous runner um, in the in the Olympics race, I think it was. But it, you you led from the start. So well done for that.
8: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I kind of I went over there and I sort of, I did believe that I had the skills to win. I was sort of, I was never sort of thinking, oh, well, I'll just go and see how I go. It was really like, okay, I'm over here and I I think that I can do this just based on my results just in at the UK Nationals and the, and the Aussie Nationals. But to go and do that first flight and then to be winning right from the start, it was a really tricky spot to be in. It was It wasn't a lot of fun, it was obviously extremely exciting, but I think to be winning from day one and just to sort of have that pressure each time, you've got everyone behind you wanting to be in your position. I made myself a nice bit of a lead midweek, so it was kind of nice to have that buffer between me and and the next place as well.
7: Did you have any specific strategy or was it take each day as it comes and just really just try and ride the the wins the best you could, yeah?
8: Yeah, pretty much. I think just taking each day as it comes is probably a, a really good strategy. Because, yeah, you've just got to leave the past flight behind, and then just every flight is a new flight, and you've just got to really keep focused and do your best on each task. So even, yeah, bracing each flight into each separate task and trying not to think about the previous task and refocusing for the next one. It's really yeah. quite mentally taxing <laughs> just keeping stay oh, yeah. focused for so long.
7: And I, I know some people have spoken about how they go with this concept of you can't be number one. on. You might have three or four tasks in the morning's flight. You can't be number one on all four, but if you do... Third or fourth on all four you might beat everyone else who's trying to be number one on all four you know that kind of thing because they'll get a really good mark on one and beat you on one but they'll do really badly on the other two that you'll beat them on and things like that and overall your aggregate is higher for the day
8: Yeah definitely I mean well, obviously you try to be number one on everyone but it really is the thing of averages I think at the um, they had the Junior World Championships just before the women's and I think the person who won didn't even win one task Yeah um, Yeah it really was you just kind of keep a constant high level of flying and you're just you're up there with your average every time. Then yeah, then you'll end up on top at the end.
7: Did you arrive early and get a few flights in before the competition started, or did you only have one or two? Some people arrive a week before and fly three or four times to get the feel of the area. Did you try that?
8: Yeah, well, we drove over from sort of south of London, we drove over to Poland. So we left ourselves quite a bit of time just having Hugo in the car with us as well. Yeah, long days driving with a a baby isn't (laughs) isn't anyone's idea of fun, I don't think. So we actually, we arrived about five days or four days before the competition started. So we were, yeah, we were almost the first ones there and so I got to get three practice flights before the actual competition. So that Very was really handy. good. Yeah, really good just to sort of know when you when you get up there, okay, that's where North and South and East and West is, and <laughs> just really, yeah. really kind of getting your bearings and knowing sort of some really sort of prominent points of the landscape, even though if the landscape was just flat. Let us know where we were competing. was just the fluffest place I've ever flown. (laughs) So we managed to get a car. I managed to get a couple of practice flights in and it really allowed us to kind of settle in as well to our accommodation and go and get whatever else we needed. And so by... Tuesday when the actual competition started, we were ready and it was really good actually having that time.
7: Cool. So that you went through, I understand the last day was lost due to fog, uh, but you got the other, other flights went okay?
8: The weather wasn't really in our favour for the week. So I think we had a potential nine flights we could have done and we only managed five. Not too bad, but yeah, obviously, you want to be flying every, yeah. every flight. Unfortunately, it's just a bad week of weather. But yeah, and then the last flight, we had a weather uh, fog delay, so we, we went to the briefing in the morning as usual, and then they pulled us out to the launch site, and we waited and waited and waited for almost two hours in the end. Oh, wow. Um, on the launch site, in this thick 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 fog which yeah it wasn't wasn't a huge amount of fun it was sort of knowing the position that i was in and obviously you yep. sort of want to fly but when you're in front and you, <laughs> you can potentially yeah. just know that you're going to be staying in front it, it no, was a bit of a nerve-wracking time
7: but all worth it in the end uh, some of the photos of you um when, when the announcer was out and you won and it was all yeah you look a relieved and stoked and yeah everything all in one wasn't it
8: and exhausted
7: <laughs> <Yes>.
8: <laughs> but yeah <laughs> yeah no I was right. it was sort of we were sort of there was lots of people kneeling around and I had Hugo there which was a lot of fun he sort of took my yeah. mind off things but um yeah I'm sort of like oh do you want to fly or don't you want to fly and yeah it was um yeah in the oh. end I was I was happy <laughs>
7: oh that's fantastic uh, you're now the world's women's well, I think the correct phrase is you're the women's world hot air balloon pot champion. Yes. So it's a major achievement. You're back here in Australia. It's life back to normal, and Hugo's like, yeah, I don't care, Mum. You're still Mum, and I'm still demanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. and there's a biz- there's a business to run and flights to be done, but the world moves on. But you've you've achieved an amazing uh, amazing level there, and and now you've just got to carry it on to Northern next year, and and on to Saga. Is there anything else coming up?
8: Yeah, well, actually, just before Saga, we've got the second Women's World Championship. So it it actually falls before the Saga World Champ. So for the next few years, I mean, I'm just going to be working on hopefully getting a little bit of sponsorship to help me to be able to go and do a few more competitions and really kind of really, really hone my skills before the really big ones. Oh, we've got the um actually the Cananda Challenge early next year and then northern later in the year and then so 2015 is a bit of a quiet year but um hopefully we'll head off to the pre-worlds in Saga that they'll have next year as well and then, yeah, 2016 is a big one. So we'll have the Women's World yeah. Championships and then a few months later, Saga with the Open Champs. You know, there won't be too many women in Saga, so I'm really hoping to get a good um, good result and just kind of mix it with the men, I suppose. <laughs> yeah.
7: I mean, you, you touched on a very important subject there. You, you, you're, you're looking at sponsorship and there, there's a lot of cost involved in shipping balloons around and um, arranging vehicles, trailers, crew, accommodation, flight. Uh, all exactly. your gear's got to get there and... and have you had any sponsorship today?
8: Uh, no. No, I haven't. Um, it's all sort of a new journey yeah. for me down that, that route. Yeah, I'm hoping that I'll be able to find someone out there who, I mean, it's a pretty unique thing, flying hot air balloons and having, mm. you know, moving billboards floating around the sky and... I don't know. I yep. think that being a female in a pretty male-dominated sport is a pretty exceptional kind of thing. So I'm hoping that someone out yep. there will be able to give me a hand, and um, it would be helpful yep. because
9: yeah, yeah we sort of
8: get back and look at our bank balance and think, oh, okay, <laughs> it does work. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, to oh, have yeah, a have things. a bit of that pressure taken off would be extremely helpful. And yep. yeah, like I said, to be able to go and do a few more competitions overseas would just be invaluable for yeah, yep. for my flying definitely.
7: We are a long way from everywhere else down here in Australia, and there's just not as many balloonatics down here as there are in other parts, like you said, up in the Northern Hemisphere. So, Yeah. well, we'll just have to see what we can do to arrange some comps down here to keep you in shape, as the saying goes, because I imagine you and Matt need lots of challenges to set your teeth into and uh, get that competition urge going.
8: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that competition ballooning in Australia started starting to really sort of pick up again. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it, and lots of. There's some new people coming through as well. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully in the next few years we'll kind of see a bit more happening. But, yeah, we just don't don't really have the population and sort of the numbers really of balloonists here to so kind of maintain lots of events. But hopefully we'll get some just nice high-quality events that will just, yeah, be great to participate in.
7: Okay, Nicola, well, I've, I've dominated a lot of your time today, taken over <laughs> half an hour of your, your afternoon. I really appreciate your time to chat and uh, thanks for coming on the show.
8: Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills, and one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From Ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more, or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level.
3: Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the
7: Wings of New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, airshow reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find The Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant, and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under show.
11: is your company in the aviation industry advertising your business on our podcasts is an easy and inexpensive way of reaching the growing online aviation community whether a conversational infomercial or radio style ad we can produce advertisements tailored to your target market and budget We can also use your own pre-produced commercial. With an audience of pilots, professionals and enthusiasts across the Asia-Pacific region and growing around the world through increasing cross-promotion with other online media, this is a great alternative to traditional advertising. For further information, simply go to our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link.
0: Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network.
3: The in your head. com. Unity 606,
2: good evening, Adelaide Ground. Taxi to Holding Point Bravo 2 via Kilo and Alpha. Taxi Hod- to Holding Point Bravo 2
0: via
6: Kilo and Alpha, Unity
2: 606. GoCat 8035. Wind is. Let me just see what it is. Uh, I'll just estimate the wind is at 5 knots. At 230 degrees, runway 23, clear to land. Clear to
7: land, GoCat 8035.
2: Malaysia 136, behind the landing Tiger A320, line up and wait, runway 23, behind.
9: Behind uh, Tiger line up wait,
10: behind, on left behind is from the major one thirty two.
6: Turn round, rounder. Go cat eighty thirty five. They've added on the Foxtrot four for um, parking bay
2: 13. three. Uh, on Foxtrot cross runway 12, Taxi to bay 13, via taxiway Lima. Go cats eighty thirty five.
6: Roger, uh, cross runway, uh, Clips across runway 12, taxi buyer,
0: taxiway Lima to Bay 13, go cat 8035.
2: Malaysian 136, your assigned heading is 220. Runway 23, Clear three for takeoff. <laughs> That's it. I'm heading 220, set for takeoff. Runway 23,
0: Malaysia 136.
2: Like any excited kid playing the train set, this air traffic control simulator was a source of a lot of amusement when I was given a go of it recently. I'm here with Peter McMillan, one of the trainers at Air Services Australia. Peter, welcome.
10: Hi, nice to join you. And uh, give us a a description of what you have here at Avalon. What we have here at the moment is a uh, simulator that we use um, for training air traffic controllers. And we can train controllers to work in anywhere from a small airport like Moorabbin, small but busy, uh, to a regional tower like Albury, to a radar tower like Melbourne tower, Adelaide tower, Sydney tower, that type of thing. And we have a graphic which is quite high quality, quite real, realistic, you can see that yourself, it's uh, pretty realistic. Um, With current aircraft being depicted in front of us, we have three... High quality screens, high definition screens, and at the moment we're looking at uh, the visuals for Melbourne Airport.
2: Yeah, I've seen the view from the tower at Melbourne, and this is virtually identical. Like the buildings, the the, the buildings are the same
10: colour, Uh, the taxiways have that weathering on it, it's it's pretty full on. Uh, It's very good actually. If you look at it, the rendering that's been done, so some technical expert in photography will go and take the photos and then it will be digitized and turned into this image and I, you're quite right. The uh, The imagery is quite realistic and when you get immersed in an exercise you forget about the lack of realism. Um, shadows being cast by the aircraft at night when they're landing, the lights on the ground, it's all very realistic.
2: And Name some of the scenarios that you can play out on the
10: simulator, both uh, normal and emergency. Yeah, we can, we can uh, start off initially with people at a very low level, so we can put in light traffic levels, arrivals and departures. Uh, we can put in um, various aircraft type, like I said before, there's a big catalogue of aircraft that can be accessed, anything from a Cessna up to an A380, 777, that type of thing. So we, we can start off at a, an exercise to get people used to using the equipment for a start, and then build up the exercises once they've got a sense of what they're doing, in a in a mechanical sense in front of them, and in terms of operating the equipment. To you can see here the the view that we've got, uh, listeners, is that um, we're essentially looking at about 120 degrees in front of us, but we can rotate that so that we can look 360 degrees around us. We can increase the traffic scenarios as I said we're looking at the graphics for Melbourne Tower and so we can have the weather associated with Melbourne Tower, rain we can have four seasons in one day and it can be made to look real so at the moment as we're looking at it, at it here where we've got a light rain falling you can see that the, the ground looks wet, you can see the rain falling you can see the cloud and you can also um, when you're operating see aircraft coming in and out of the cloud layers so it's very realistic. We can also do lasso operations here, depict lasso operations, we can show the lasso lights and um, just for the listeners if they haven't seen the lasso lights they're a colting light at the runway's intersection for the runway to they hold short of. We can then put emergencies into the situation, we can script that and, and the um, technical experts for the system can program it such that you've got many scenarios, as many as you'd like to think of. A blown engine, so you can blow an engine on departure and see the smoke trailing out of the back of it, something we don't like to see, but something that we can train people to be familiar with and be able to deal with that situation. We can call out the fire station, we can put them on a local standby situation, they can turn out and we'll be speaking to those vehicles so that that's a real situation, so we can do the full gamut. You you described earlier on four seasons in a day. That definitely sounds like Melbourne. Very much so. You don't come to Melbourne
2: for the weather. No, you don't. You don't. The weather has been good at Avalon this week, hasn't it? It's been perfect, actually. Not too hot, so just right. And you mentioned a lasso earlier on. Now I'm a pilot. I know what that is. You're a controller. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what lasso is, just in a basic sense?
10: In a basic sense, it's a it's a procedure that um, can be used to increase the capacity of the airport, and uh, particularly with crossing runways, because in in Australia it's used at airports like Melbourne, Adelaide, which have crossing runways. So it's a procedure where you have two types of aircraft, passive and active aircraft. The active aircraft will be given a requirement to hold short of the crossing runway, and the passive passive aircraft will be landing on the crossing runway with the full length of the runway available to them. And both aircraft will be given traffic so that their situational awareness is high in the event of uh, missed approaches or the procedure having some issues. And it works very well. It increases the capacity of the airport at peak arrival times. So, uh, if I got this right, lasso is land and
2: hold shorts operation? That is correct, yes. Oh, very good, because if we got that wrong, then I uh, might as well suspend my license. <laughs> no, we wouldn't want to do that, would we? No, no. Um, just briefly, name, name the uh, specific systems here or displays here that you have replicated in the simulator that the controllers will end up using uh, once
10: they're out there. The specific displays that we've got in front of us are um, selectable. So at the moment we're looking at the airport and its associated lighting. And we can select from that same screen I can display what the current weather is. I can show flight plan information. I can
11: show
10: radar information as well. So we can display the airborne radar. We can display the ground radar. So it would be similar to surface movement radar that people are familiar with at Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth and we have voice switching or the intercom lines that we have between controllers and other stations whether it be the airport operator or adjacent units and the frequency controls for the relevant positions.
2: Oh, Very good. Well it it definitely looks real when you had Adelaide on when I was using it, it, it reminded me of home. For a moment I thought I was home. I wish I was. No, I don't. <laughs> it's excellent. No, it's very good, and it's good you got your display here. So, Peter, thank you very much for your time.
10: Thank you very much for yours, and I uh, hope to meet you again soon. I'm sure we'll talk to each other on the airwave somewhere. Yep, for sure. What have you done, Micah? It wasn't me. It was that, that
2: It's got flames coming out of it. I haven't a good tonight.
9: Oh, look at that.
2: Uh, So what did you do? You crashed it. Yeah. Cool. Not only the system, a plane and... Uh, (laughs) Did you have fun? fun. I had fun. That was great. Sorry, what's your name? Bro. Micah. You're a controller as well? No. No.
6: What do you do? I'm a simulator support officer. I've got no idea how to control aircraft.
2: Oh, okay. (laughs) Bloody
1: hell, Micah. You broke it. You broke the whole goddamn simulator.
0: Any wonder they had to shut down Avalon
2: early last year. Oh, mate. No wonder there was plumes of smoke coming off that tent. (laughs) Okay, I I may have got a little bit smug, a little bit confident the more I went into that simulator. Uh, It was good fun, though, and you should all watch the video that will come up with the show as well.
0: Yeah, we should mention that uh, Micah has got a, he's actually taken video of all this so he can't get out of it and, and um, <laughs> we're sending it off to Stephen Pam, our video guru, to uh, just put some finishing touches on that. But uh, well, I, I tell you what, mate, you'd better uh, get him to put some uh, CGI in there and make sure he didn't actually burn that airport to the ground. That's what I'm thinking.
2: I, I can't help it if a plane lands and just wants to set itself on fire. I can't help that. I can send the water out, the tankers to go out and put them out.
0: There you go. Well, it sounded uh, very realistic there, and uh, looking at some of the photos, uh, it's quite a good setup. I mean, you know, they've obviously brought down a stripped-down setup of that to, to Avalon last year to, to show people, but uh, I imagine that, uh, you know, getting up there to their actual training facility would be quite You know, Grant, we we ought to get up there sometime.
1: Oh, yeah. we've It's been a little while since we were last at uh, Tullard, having a look at the uh, simulator room and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, the new control tower hadn't even been started back then.
1: Well, yeah, we, we dream of getting up to the control tower.
0: Yes, that's right. Do we know any ATC people, Grant? Oh, oh
1: one or two. What
0: shall sure we do? I'm looking at you, I'd, filthy I'd, Barbary.
1: I'd. I know a few people yeah yeah I mean Filthy would probably help us out I'm sure he
0: would I'm sure he would could cost a couple of slabs yeah oh, that's right a couple of slabs of chocolate milk you know my style mate hey. well there we go and uh, as uh, as I mentioned there's, there's a few interviews there that were kind of from the vault but uh, you know obviously our production rate did slow down uh, quite significantly in 2015 so we had a lot of content stored and uh, you know we've still got, actually got a fair bit to go and uh, we might actually try and uh, cobble together another episode uh, relatively shortly and uh, clear, clear the decks a bit you know it's, it's funny, you know, Grant, when we, we started this and we often go to people and we think, uh, you know, oh, you know, they're journalists or whatever. We don't want to talk to them. But, uh, you know, I found in aviation uh, across the journey here as we've been doing this show the last five, six years that um, everybody's got a story to tell. It's just a matter of getting them talking and then they, they're usually quite happy to tell it.
1: Oh, heck yeah. And uh, sometimes it's a matter of uh, us remembering, oh, hey, it's been three hours. We better stop. <laughs> think of the editing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, we'll just put it out, direct to drive. But, uh, dude, uh, with respect to the uh, next episode, all I can say as jinx well done we'll get it out when we get it out yeah it's like, yeah oh yeah, yeah. well, we'll get it out shortly yeah thanks mate
0: yeah yeah well, shortly is a relative term you know i still work for the railways grant so oh okay
1: <laughs> if if I, I, time is a relative episode, term my friend yeah, next episode will be out somewhere before the end of 2020.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we apologise for the inconvenience. Anyway, Grant, let's have a look at some of the things that are coming up uh, in 2016. Of course, uh, coming up very shortly as we record this is the uh, the Tyab Air Show. That's coming up in another couple of weeks or so, actually. So uh, that's always a wonderful air show. They, they have it down here at uh, Tyab Airfield, which is uh, you know, 40 or 50 Ks, I suppose, southeast of Melbourne. And uh, a wonderful, you will struggle anywhere in Australia, I think, to find a better collection of warbirds uh, and, and really a great aviation community there at that little air. Port and uh, they they do put on a wonderful air show. Uh, We produced the DVD for them in 2014 and uh, Grant, I think uh, they're silly enough to want us to come back and do it again this year. So uh, with a little bit of help this year from some other parties, we're going to have another crack at it. So really looking forward to that air show.
1: Yeah, that's right, mate. And uh, naturally that air show is happening right when I'm in Canberra flying balloons, but doing a lot of the pre-production planning at the moment with uh, Stephen Pam and uh, Carl von Muller and uh, also James and... The three guys are doing a heck of a lot of work to bring us all this together, and I'm trying to run around and coordinate it, despite the uh, distractions of my day job and the uh, work I do with the Australian Ballooning Federation. But we're getting there, and it's looking to be a good one. I'm hearing on the rumor vine that Graham Hosking's uh, F4U Corsair, which is based at Tyab, is likely to fly, and there's also an indication that they may even bring down the uh, focke Wolf 190 and fly that past there, so... Yeah, it's, it's a really good show and highly recommended. I'd, I'd say the, it, it's, it's batting above its weight and it's getting pretty close to the, uh, the Warbirds Down Under show that happens every two years at Tamora. That's always a fantastic show and lots of good Warbirds and current aircraft and military and so on. But uh, Tyab's doing pretty well with uh, the group they're able to get there.
0: Yes, and uh, folks, that's actually on Sunday, the 13th of March, 2016. And uh, more details uh, on the web, of course, at tyabairshow.com. Uh, you can also go to the Peninsula Aero Club's website if you like, and there's a link off there. That's pac.asn.au. And, uh, yeah, come down. And, and if nothing else, come down and say hello to us because we'll be there. In fact, I think my job this time, Grant, will be looking after all the food.
1: Yeah, well, we've, we had to find something that was just perfectly suited for you. No, oh, absolutely. And food immediately came to mind mate
0: yeah i'll tell you what mate if you've been as crook as i've been crook over the last few months uh you know i don't think i'll be eating that much but anyway, oh dude it's just
1: it's just wrong
0: that's probably just it's probably a good thing
1: (laughs) yeah well don't get as thin as me mate
0: Now, uh, coming up, of course, uh, not too long after that is uh, Wings over Illawarra. And uh, once again, uh, really looking forward to that. And Grant, we're going to be doing the air show commentary there. And uh, I always get a little bit nervous about doing big events like this. But uh, once we get into it, it's uh, it's really, really good. And uh, that'll be a fantastic event. Hoping for better luck with the weather this time around. I'm sure third time's a charm.
1: Yeah, well, we've had wind. We've had rain. Let's see what this year brings us. But uh, yeah, we'll be up on the uh, commentary spot with uh, Ando. Uh, Peter Anderson is going to be there as well. So the three of us will be doing commentary. And we're also going to have a team shooting video and then producing the DVD afterwards. So we could wind up with three airshow DVDs under our belt pretty
0: soon yeah fantastic uh, wings over that runs from uh, Saturday April 30th through to uh, Sunday the 1st of May and uh, i tell you what uh, again you're getting up there to another fantastic uh, aviation community up there on the uh, south coast of uh, New South Wales just south of Sydney it's about an hour or so's drive and uh, really really well worth going now yeah, I know they haven't had a lot of luck with the weather in the last couple of years but uh, you know that's uh, that's certainly you know something they can't control but I'm sure this year uh, we're going to have a a better time at it. There's global warming and everything, Grant. It, it can't be bad weather all the time. That's what I keep reading.
1: Yeah, well, the bad weather comes uh, down here and disappears further south, and things have been getting better down here. I don't know. Aside from the humidity, it's not too bad. But, yeah, Whiskey Oscar India, woi.org.au It's a really quicker way of getting to wingsoverillawarra.com.au. Because, hey, let's face it, not many people, even those in Australia, can spell Illawarra. I can't, and I'm from New South Wales. <laughs> and what was that famous phrase? I don't want to speak Illawarra. <laughs> oh, I might leave you Australiana. <laughs> Woo-hoo.
0: Now, I just want to mention one uh, that's coming up, another event, uh, just for a little bit later in this year, and of course, that is the Kyneton Air Show. Now, the uh, the Kyneton Aero Club is running this. You might have, if you're in the aviation community, you might be aware, particularly in, uh, if you're down here in uh, Victoria, that uh, this um, airfield has been under somewhat of a bit of a threat from the local council and whatnot. Some uh, angry residents around there who've, uh, you know, been you know, for whatever reason, have done the usual thing and bought their houses next to an a- airport and all of a sudden can't really work out why there's aircraft flying all around. So we need all as much many of our PCDU uh, listenership to get out there and uh, really help support uh, the Coynton Aero Club. Uh, They're getting some uh, good acts there. They're going to have a lot of warbirds there. Even the roulettes are coming along. So uh, make sure you get there. Put it in your diaries now. I know it's early in the year, but that'll be uh, 23rd of October, and uh, we'll certainly mention that a few more times later in the year. Uh, More details there at coyntonaeroclub.org.
1: Yeah, that's the one, mate. We're uh, really looking forward to being there, one way or another. We're going to be on the field.
0: Woohoo! Fant- you know, Kathy Mixter doesn't live far from there, Grant. Maybe maybe she could bring lunch.
2: Yeah, actually, yeah, her turn to bring the food. Yeah, she, awesome. can, she can. bring lunch in the Piper Cub. She could. She Straight could. Straight
0: across. She could fly it there from her house. Have you, did you know she's got a runway on her property?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's right in the backyard. They own it. It's not shared with anyone else, except for some kangaroos. You just got to watch out for the roos on it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a great little property, and uh, yeah, just near Hanging Rock. I've been looking at that as an opportunity to get a bunch of balloons lined up on there and uh, take off and launch straight for the rock and go over the top.
0: You know what we should do? We should hold our own air show there at Kathy's Runway, the PCDU yeah. air show. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. A balloon and a couple of trikes. This could be fun. And that thud you just heard was uh, Kathy passing out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, don't worry. She doesn't listen to the show. What would she know? Oh, <laughs> oh,
0: there's going to be mail for that. Okay, Micah, there must be some air shows going on in your part of the world.
2: Well, lots of them all happened last year. However, there's talk of one happening in October this year, 2016, over in Port Lincoln. Now, Port Lincoln is a coastal town on the uh, couple of gulfs away from Adelaide. It's a short 35, 40-minute flight away from Adelaide. So keep your eyes peeled for that air show. Uh, the more local air shows we have in South Australia, the better. In South Australia, though, it is a, not so much a popular state, so we do have some great air shows here like we did last year, the DeBrosse air show that... All three of us were at commentating and uh, J- Jamestown Air show that happened in October, and, and I got thrown in to commentate at the last minute without my uh, without my knowledge. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, from all reports, mate, you did a very, very good job of that. So uh, you know, you don't want to be careful, mate. You don't want to do us. You know, we're the bosses here, Randy. You know, you can't do us out of a job.
2: <laughs> all right, I, I'm pretty sure they're happy with our efforts. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's yeah. really
0: good to hear. Really yeah, good
1: to hear. It was a, it was a small matter of uh, me being busy flying balloons in the Hunter and not being able to get out there,
0: mate. No, I detect a theme here. Grant's never around because he's flying balloons. There you go.
1: Yeah, well, you know, life's better when you're flying. I, I... I feel a lot better when there's altitude. Man. I'm the
2: same.
0: Yeah. Now, just before we wrap <laughs> up this episode, uh, you know, and folks, I hope you've enjoyed this one. I know it's been a long time waiting, but uh, I just wanted to address, uh, I guess, you know, we've had a fair bit of mail saying, where are you guys and what's happening? Well, uh, well, here we are, we're back. Well, uh, basically, um, we were pretty tired last year. <laughs> we needed a bit of a break. We've been at this for five and a half, coming up six years now, and uh, we just all needed to take a break and have a bit of a refresh. Um, we've also um, just put our Australia Desk segment on hold on the Airplane Geeks podcast for a while just to free up a bit of time and uh, you know life changes and uh, I think that's affected both of us here you know Grant and I have both had uh, a couple of career changes and it's uh, you know changed the amount of time that we've had available to get out and, and really get this show produced it's not that we don't Ooh. want to <laughs> it's not that the uh, the will has not been there it's just really the time hasn't been so uh, you know we're hoping this year to uh, start afresh and um, you know I don't think we'll get one out every month but uh, we'll get one you know as as they're ready we'll get them out and uh, you know we, we. We, we sort of hope for a good crop of shows coming out in uh, 2016 there's certainly a lot of uh, good events going on uh, we can we can cover and there's always really good aviation stories as well so really looking forward to getting back into it i really appreciate uh what we both do uh you know the 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 number of emails that we got saying guys please come back i mean it's it's quite humbling actually we've actually had quite a few donations to our little uh paypal donate site there too so thanks to all of you that have done that we think i was runways for sticking with us and hello bez we might just send you another bill Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that bad Shepherds? Did you know he's bought another aeroplane?
1: Yeah, I know, I know, I know. The Oz Runway's SR22.
0: Unbelievable. Well, I hope he's putting some PCDU stickers all over it. Maybe we could uh, sneak over there to his... Uh, to... Actually, Mikey, you could do that. You're not far from Parafield, are you?
2: I'm yeah. 10 minutes up the road from Parafield. Yeah, we can get you to whack a, whack a PCDU sticker on it. Ah, uh, <laughs>
0: he'll never notice. Yeah,
2: And yeah. when he does notice, I think he'll end up stop inviting me out for lunch. <laughs> there is always that, but uh, it's just a shame Jamie's got
1: to change the registration on that aircraft. It was the, the salubrious OOK, O-O-Q, so that was, a, that was a good one. I was like, oh, cool, OOK, it's the, it's the APE bullet, um, aircraft. But no, now he naturally went out and managed to get his hands on Echo Foxtrot. Bravo. So he is now flying the electronic flight bag.
0: The man's incorrigible, isn't he? <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. Well, that's everything we have for you on this edition of Playing Crazy Down Under, folks. It's been really good to be back. Thanks again for your patience. Grant, uh, you, you have fun flying balloons, and Mike, you have a lot of fun flying whatever those aircraft are you fly.
2: You mean turbo props? Ah,
0: no <laughs> need to show off. Nobody likes a show off.
2: <laughs> well, I, I can't hear you from the flight level, Steve. Oh, that's oh, right. Oh, oh.
0: Zing. We love the smell of Avtur in the morning. Just uh, yeah. that one. I've been That's in the flight levels once. Grant, did I ever tell you about that time I went for that ride in that Hercules? I can't remember if I did. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe Come it's on, time I've... to find a new joke for 2016. What do you think? Uh, oh, God, can you manage that? <laughs> we'll be back reasonably soon, we hope, with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Folks, stay safe, fly safely, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers.
2: Catch you all. See you all later
11: you've been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Visher, Grant McCarran and Micah Lee. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at plaincrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback? Suggestions? Advertising inquiries? Email them through to contact at plaincrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.